Good morning, Andre. Good morning, sorry, um, Secretary. <laughs> um, good morning, Mrs. Hermans. Um, good morning. Yeah, over just, to you. Just to inform the, 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 the platform that the chairperson is, is struggling to, to connect, and he has Mrs. Hermans to start the meeting until he may be able to connect. I just think it will be safe if we were just in the interim elect an acting chairperson, Mrs. Hermans, so that that are procedurally in order if we if, if we proceed in that way, if we um, until the chair um, is able to join the meeting, if we can um, um, take that approach, I'll, I'll, I think that will be much more um, procedurally in order. So if we can have in in the absence of the chairperson in terms of the of, of the of the rules, um, call for a nomination for. Um, the acting for the acting chairperson until the chairperson is able to to join the meeting. Um, the floor is open for such nomination. We have Ms. Mutahum and Mr. Bernice Mamashe. Uh, thanks, Andri. Uh, good morning, colleagues. Uh, I nominate Honorable Hermans to chair the meeting for today. Um, Ms. Thank you, Mrs. Mr. Burns Namashe. Moreni Malunga Committee I support uh, the nomination of uh, Honorable Hermans. Thank you. Um, just in terms, are there any other nominations? Um, there being no other nomination, Mrs. Hermans is duly elected as chairperson of the meeting until the return of the chairperson. And I'll ask her to take the chair and we'll start proceedings. Thank you very much, uh, um, Committee Secretary. And um, good morning to everyone who has joined us on the platform. Can we ask that the agenda be flattered, please? Chair, may I just suggest that we do a roll call first, Chair, then we'll find the agenda if that's in order. That's in order. Okay. Can proceed. Okay, Mr. Mumbayani. Mr. Mumbayani. Uh, good morning. Good morning, uh, Chairperson of the session. Good morning, colleagues. I'm present. Thank you. Ms. Muatse. Good morning, Chairperson, and good morning, Honorable Members. I'm present. Mr. Burns Namashe. Moros Lalo Namalongo, I'm present. Thank you. Mr. Mulder. Good morning, Chair. Good morning, colleagues. I'm present. Chair, Mr. Cuthbert, Chair. Good morning. Chair, Mr. McPherson, Chair. I'm um, here, yeah, thanks. Chair, those are the members we have on the platform at the moment, Chair. We will. We can flag the agenda for consideration, Chair, if that's in order. 
Okay, for the record, we do meet a quorum, so we will proceed. That's correct. So yes. there's the agenda. It's opening and welcome. Apologies, adoption of the agenda. Briefing on the master plan for the steel and metal fabrication sector by the minister. Consideration of the draft committee program for the first quarter of 2022. Consideration of minutes and closing remarks. Uh, can I have a mover and a seconder for the adoption of the agenda as tabled? Um, Chair, we have, can I, before we proceed with the adoption of agenda, just to submit the recording in progress. That I see from Mr. Thring, who has a medical apology, and Ms. Yaku, who is on party business, who will not be able to attend. Chair, then we have the hands of Mr. Yat Mulder and Ms. Mutahung, Chair. Thank Honourable Mulder. Thank you, Honourable Chair Honourable Hammonds. Uh, I just wanted to bring before we we uh, adapt the agenda for today and the attention of the committee that I've sent an urgent email last night to the chair and to the secretary uh, about a issue on the advertisement of request for public. Uh, commentary on the um, copyright amendment bill, which is rather urgent, which I bring, want to bring under your attention with your commission, but it's up to you, Chair. Uh, thank you. I think we can take it as the last item on the agenda, if committee members agree, although we've already adopted uh, the agenda. Um, so can I just check uh, with... Um, the committee secretary, what is the procedure in terms of the chair, item? We, chair, we, I was going to propose that we deal with the matter at the end of the meeting, Chair. We just now, if that's in order with the committee, um, we can address that matter at the end of the meeting, if the committee so wish. Um, we just now need to adopt, formally adopt the agenda item, which with, with that slight amendment, if the committee is in order with that, Chair. Can I see this? Any of Position Ms. to that uh, proposal. I Ms. don't Mutahung, see any hands, so we will. Yeah, I Ms. don't Mutahung. see any hands, so we will deal then with the um, adding that matter regarding the advertisement um, by honourable raised by honourable Mulder at the end of the meeting. Can I have Chair. a move and a, sec and a proposal for the adoption of the agenda? Uh, we have the hand Thanks, Chair. Uh, I second the adoption of the agenda with the amendment of the last item. Uh, Chair, okay. we didn't have a move. Can we have a move? Yeah, I think that's a proposal. Yeah. Can we have a second? Chair? Ms. Muasi, Honourable I think uh, Honourable Mutaung moved for adoption of the agenda and with the amendment. Then I also second the move. Thank you very Thank much, Honourable So we can proceed with the agenda. Um, Chair, we have um, Minister Patel. Chair, yeah. if, you, if I may. We have Minister Patel who will lead the, 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 the discussion and he will do the introductory remarks 
followed by other stakeholders um, 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 as, as indicated by Minister Patel Chair. Thank you very much. Uh, over to you, uh, Minister Patel and your team. Uh, good morning. Uh, good morning, our acting chairperson. Good morning, honorable members of parliament. Uh, good morning to the uh, officials of the DTIC and its agencies, as well as members of the business community. Uh, good morning to uh, all the uh, members of the public who may be uh, attending. Chairperson, I'd like to thank uh, you and the committee for this opportunity for us to present on the steel master plan. It's been an important uh, part of the master plan program of government and the last number of months has seen uh, a bigger focus on uh, getting the economy moving to a higher plane. And so it's very fitting that we, we have an opportunity today to unpack a little bit the steel master plan. The steel industry, of course, as honorable members will know, is uh, quite a vital part of the industrialization of any country. Steel is critical because not only does the industry make the products that we use, whether it is uh, uh, the knives and forks that we eat with uh, uh, at dinner, but it also makes the products that makes the products in a modern economy. It's the sector that does the machinery and the equipment and so on. And so many countries uh, aspire to have at least a basic steel industry and a high level of sophistication in downstream steel to ensure that, in fact, the, they are able to produce. So you see steel is a big part of the economic uh, thinking in the United States, the European Union, China, India. Uh, Many of the newly industrialized economies uh, have invested very, very significantly in steel over, over many decades. In the case of South Africa, uh, steel is also an important user of the iron ore that we produce in quite significant quantities. And uh, we've had uh, the steel industry also being, uh, of course, uh, significantly impacted by uh, the uh, fluctuations and challenges, uh, both domestically and globally across the entire value chain, starting from iron ore up to finished products. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. In the case of South Africa, uh, the steel industry historically had its upstream part, its, the, the production of your basic steel, uh, was done in a company called ISCO. ISCO was effectively a state-owned company uh, supported by, uh, among others, uh, the Industrial Development Corporation. And ISCO was privatized many years ago. And so for some decades now, South Africa has had a private sector uh, steel value chain. Steel is still uh, the biggest part of the manufacturing sector. It accounts for a very large number of jobs and uh, is a very significant economic multiplier, meaning what happens in the steel industry, uh, jobs that are created there, uh, value that is uh, generated there has an impact on what happens in other parts of the economy. It creates wealth and it enables wealth 
uh, across wide parts of the economy. So it's really quite an important sector. And the steel industry has been going through quite severe challenges globally. So let me start maybe with a global context before coming to the domestic context. Uh, the big issues globally that the steel industries had to deal with are matters of global oversupply, climate change and the impact on the industry, volatile iron ore prices, and this is the challenge of commodity prices uh, beyond just the steel industry, and significant uh, government interventions globally in the steel industry. If I start with global oversupply, uh, Chairperson, it's really, if we look at what the steel industry is producing in factories spread right across the world, supply exceeds demand uh, on aggregate. So while you may have shortages in particular niche products, overall primary steel is produced at quantities that the market can't easily absorb. Now, there are many different um, explanations for this. Um, one standard explanation that is offered is that uh, when the world went into the big crunch in 2008-2009 with the global economic crisis, uh, China, in order to mitigate the impact of the global slowdown, invested very heavily in infrastructure. And they contributed greatly to keeping global demand buoyant, in other words, to keep it quite, quite strong. But they did that off the back of quite significant expansion of Chinese steelmaking. When that infrastructure program started to level out, you still had this enormous steelmaking capability. And uh, unusually for a, um, a, a manufactured product, the steel industry has some dedicated uh, uh, attention paid to it. For example, uh, in the G20, all the steel ministers have met together and there are now, there's now a committee of steel ministers that include most of the G20 countries, including South Africa. And it's the only product globally that has the attention of governments across the world where everybody is looking at uh, the steel overproduction and what can be done to mitigate this. And as one can understand, appreciate, uh, it's led to very, very significant trade tensions. The United States, for example, under then uh, President Donald Trump, had introduced extraordinary measures to protect the U.S. steel industry. They used uh, uh, a, a special provision, uh, which is called a national security provision, in American legislation to uh, impose quite uh, steep controls on the import of steel and aluminium and other products. Uh, because essentially what the United States argued is that the national security is affected by having uh, a domestic supply of steel available and the global overproduction could destroy American steel industry and leave America vulnerable to having to be an importer of a critical product that goes into uh, key parts of the economy, but also into, of course, uh, the, um, the military uh, 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 industrial complex. So 
Uh, aside from these interventions, there's also been quite strong actions by governments to try to support their steel industry. And we've seen it in Europe, uh, presidents and prime ministers getting involved when there's talk of a steel mill closing. And uh, in, uh, in a number of countries, uh, the uh, allegation has been made, of course, often denied by countries concerned, that there is a very strong government involvement in subsidizing and supporting steelmaking. In, in respect of climate change, uh, the steel industry is a very big user of, uh, of energy. And much of that energy historically has been coal uh, generated. And in the COP26 uh, talks, everybody recognized that the steel industry is one of those what was called hard to abate industries. In other words, it's a sector that is not easily uh, shifted to uh, uh, greening. Uh, and uh, part of it is because it uses just such enormous quantities of energy that needs to be available uh, 24 hours a day in many countries, uh, close to 365 days a year. So given that there's been more and more focus on how to find a path to greening the steel industry. And we are in the early stages of countries and companies experimenting with what can be done. Of course, this introduces a whole new set of issues from new cost drivers uh, that may increase the price of steel to uh, the potential for protection by particularly the European Union and others uh, who may introduce uh, border taxes on steel produced elsewhere in the world that doesn't meet the environmental standards that uh, the European Union may put in place. There are, of course, very volatile iron ore movements. South Africa has seen that. We've been through a commodity super cycle uh, in the period uh, of the, I would, I would guess, about 2009 uh, 2007, 2008 onwards. And uh, that commodity super cycle came to an end. We've seen a further rally in iron ore prices. We've seen uh, new pressures uh, on, on pricing. Uh, some of it has been affected by availability, what's happened to uh, iron ore uh, capacity in other parts of the world like Brazil. So it's been a complex story. As regards the local industry, the industry has had to deal with the challenges of uh, the, uh, I see our chairperson has joined us uh, and um, uh, he is, um, uh, his phone icon shows him at a slant and he is now switched that off. But uh, chairperson, the local industry has to deal on the one hand with the global challenges because with this global oversupply of steel, the problem that South Africa and many other economies face is that there's a significant disruption of domestic up, uh, upstream steel production because cheaper steel is now available uh, across the world. And that means the pricing structures that uh, companies have in place 
are often not able to compete with uh, imported steel. Compounding that problem is South Africa's own uh, challenges. And primary among those is the uh, very high energy prices and the disruption in stable supply of energy. So each time we have load shedding for a typical consumer and a, and a normal business, it is very, very disruptive. For the steel industry, it is even more devastating because steel production is based on continuous operations. And uh, while companies have, um, uh, of course, uh, uh, their own uh, ways of managing the steel, uh, steel industry really does require a stable and cost-effective supply of energy. Logistic bottlenecks at our ports, uh, rail lines, and so on, have, um, have also contributed to challenges in the steel industry. And state infrastructure spending, particularly infrastructure spending by ESCOM and to some extent Transnet, has affected the steel industry. Typically, the steel industry is uh, an enormous supplier of the uh, steel products that go into dams and hospitals and uh, energy uh, plants and uh, schools and so on. And for a period up to about 2013, 2014, we had relatively vigorous spending on infrastructure. As infrastructure spending tapered down, the impact on the steel industry has been quite uh, enormous. Now, I sketched that, honorable members, to introduce the steel master plan. So faced with these and many other challenges, some of the challenges that I've not mentioned, because I really just wanted to, to sketch in very broad terms the context of the industry. Given all of this, we decided that the best way forward for the steel industry was to have a, a new partnership. And this was after steel uh, companies reported massive job losses, plant closures, and many uh, steel companies saw that there was really no way forward based on simply seeking to survive on the old paradigm. Initially, government um, introduced as a very short-term measure some trade uh, measures, uh, tariff uh, protection, in order to ensure that we have a steel industry that we can then talk about and whose future we can then uh, discuss. And that meant uh, using that temporary shield to put in place a broader growth plan for the industry that may include trade protection, but it won't rely on trade protection as the only means of uh, ensuring that we have the steel, uh, a viable competitive steel industry. And the master plan concept is really one of partnerships that you bring around the table, uh, the business community, the trade unions, government in all of its forms, regulators, uh, everybody. And we begin a conversation then about what every party can do to try to improve the performance of the industry and what every constituency can reasonably expect from the, uh, the, uh, a competitive, strong, and dynamic industry. For businesses, of course, 
they would be looking to have a rate of return to shareholders that will keep shareholders invested in the sector. For trade unions, they would be looking for jobs and decent employment conditions. For government, it's a viable uh, sector that is uh, able to provide uh, steel products to South Africans and to export markets. And South Africa is quite an important steel producer on the African continent. Africa as a whole produces less than 1% of global steel. So as a continent, we're largely an importer of steel. And it's an index of Africa's own underdevelopment. I've just come back uh, yesterday afternoon from a, a visit to Nigeria, to Cote d'Ivoire, and to Ghana. And one of the issues that came up in all three countries was the concern and the challenge about the, the lack of a steel industry in those countries. And they were looking to find um, uh, ideas and suggestions of how Africa can develop its uh, steel industry. Because as a continent, we're an exporter of the raw materials that go into the steel industry, and we're an importer of uh, finished goods. The two exceptions, uh, the two countries that have uh, relatively large uh, steel industries by the standards in the continent are Egypt and South Africa. And so it's an industry worth uh, working on and ensuring uh, it has a future. Of course, it's a very big user of uh, local minerals, so it is a driver of beneficiation. Um, and, uh, and for that reason, when we decided we needed to have a steel master plan, we this was pre-COVID, we got everybody into a room. It was a packed room in a way that we can't have today. And we had an enormous enthusiasm. The, the industry was at the time really uh, uh, characterized by a huge conflict. Uh, and the conflict arises from the fact that in the steel value chain, uh, one producer is... Uh, a supplier to another producer. So issues of price, quality, availability of product, and so on are quite critical. And we had an industry that was really more uh, at war with each other about what should be done. And we put to the industry the proposition that if they simply wanted to put, like in a court case, their arguments to government in the hope that government would pick a side that would not be a sustainable solution. That we needed to find something where the industry finds a common perspective, a common approach to growing itself again, that it identifies what it needs from government, uh, and that uh, we then become a partner in the, uh, the rejuvenation and the re-energizing of the steel industry. It was a difficult set of discussions. I then appointed uh, Dr. Bernie Fenneroff, who has... Uh, uh, experience in a range of, uh, of areas to be uh, a facilitator. And he met with the steel industry over the COVID period. And it resulted eventually in a set of agreements about how to go forward. And those agreements are contained in the steel master plan, which has been circulated to members of the committee. Now, because the steel uh, master plan is really about a partnership, when the committee uh, so um, uh, kindly uh, provided an opportunity for us to, to brief the committee on the steel master plan, uh, I had the, the option of doing it in the traditional way, which is that 
Uh, I will take the committee through a presentation. I will be supported by one or two officials in the department, and there would be a Q&A. But we felt in this case, a lot of the richness of the partnership is lost if we do it that way, because I would then be speaking on behalf of the business community and of organized labor uh, when um, they are co-partners in the effort to get the steel industry up and running again. So we decided that we would um, uh, ask the steel industry to attend the, uh, the, the portfolio committee meeting this morning and uh, to also make contributions as part of the ministerial input into the uh, portfolio committee today so that the steel master plan is then presented by its partners we also had the challenge that the steel master plan was uh, formally uh, signed in June this year and we were already in November. So we didn't want to focus only on what is in the steel master plan. We also wanted to give an idea of what we are doing now to implement the steel master plan so that we move from conception to implementation. Because we recognize with all the master plans, the easy bit is developing a plan. Plans come dime a dozen. The difficult one is implementing a coherent thought-through plan and dealing with the challenges on a day-to-day -day basis of, of getting all the parties aligned. And so it's uh, uh, my pleasure, Chairperson, to, uh, to indicate that we are joined today from the department by the Director General, who everybody knows, um, Malebo Mabichi Thompson, uh, as well as um, uh, the uh, uh, Chief Economist, Stephen Hannibal. Uh, we also are joined by the Chief Director of the Downstream Metals uh, Sector, Tandi Pele. Committee members will know Tandi. And a, a, a quite a significant number of officials from the department. Uh, Bernie Fenneroff has joined us. We're also joined by industry players, um, uh, on the one hand, uh, led by uh, Ilias Monache, who is the president of the largest steel uh, uh, employer uh, or business association, Steel and Engineering uh, Industries Federation of Southern Africa, SIFSA, uh, and is also uh, uh, currently the head of uh, the Black Business uh, Council. Ivan Jim is the General Secretary of NUMSA, uh, and he will be representing the two trade unions that are parties to the Steel Master Plan. Uh, so he's here on behalf of both NUMSA and Solidarity. We've got a, a number of business representatives um, from uh, Segrin Moodley, who is the Chairman and CEO of NetPress, Rob Petersmer, the MD of CBC Fastness, Charles Dednam, the Secretary General of the SAI and Steel Institute, Harry Castle, the Group CEO of the Reclamation Group, Doron Barnes, who is the CEO of Score Metals uh, and, uh, uh, and the Barnes Group. Uh, we also have Johan Stradom from Columbus Steel, Johan Berger, uh, the CEO of Highfelt Industrial Park, Nonconzo Molai, the Executive Director of Abadir Cables, uh, Sibusiso Mapatiani, who's uh, the head of 
Naledi, uh, which is one of the foundries. Uh, and then there are representatives of uh, uh, regulators, government regulators like SARS, the Commission of ITAC is here, and there are um, a number of senior officials from the IDC, led by Joanne Bate, the COO, and, uh, and people working on the master plan from the DTIC. So, Chairperson, um, having given an overview, really, of what the master plan uh, conceptually is about in the background to it. Uh, with your support, Chair, what I'd wanted to do is to give an opportunity uh, for the uh, uh, two uh, key representatives from our social partners to make some very brief remarks and um, to ask if between five and at most seven minutes uh, they could... Uh, uh, they could make some, some remarks, and I'm going to ask Ilias uh, Munahi again with the Chair's uh, permission just to briefly address the committee. Okay, thank you very much. Um, uh, Honourable Duma, I see your hand, and as you are now on the platform, I hand over to you. Honourable Duma? Sorry, Honourable Nkosi. You are muted. Honorable Nkosi, you are muted. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. You may proceed. Yeah. Let me just say, Chair, the problem, my iPad has gone off completely. I'm working from my phone. So what I would suggest greatly, uh, Whip, is to actually suggest that you proceed because these gadgets, uh, if you don't use them for more than three weeks, you forget how it works. Can I ask that uh, the Whip occupies my space for this session of our program portfolio committee today? Please, if you can actually be... Um, uh, helpful. I would greatly appreciate uh, we to proceed as we have started. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Honourable Nkosi. Can I just check with the committee secretary um, what is the procedure because the chairperson is on the platform. Can we just um, proceed as we have started? No problem. We have an elected youth acting chairperson. The chairperson has requested because he has a challenge and he has asked you that you continue with chairing the committee that should, that should not be procedurally out of order. So you may proceed, Mrs. Herman, in chairing the meeting as, as agreed to by the committee earlier this morning. Thank you very much. Minister, over to you. You were introducing Dr. Bernie Fanerock. Uh, thank you very you much, uh, Chair. Thank you. Um, I was asking um, Ilias Munahi from CIFSA just to make a few introductory remarks before we start with the formal presentation. That's in, in order. Proceed. Chair and Minister, I don't see, unless you joined Mr. Munahi on the platform, 
Okay, I think the right is not on the platform. Okay, it, can I then ask that as soon as he joins, that he be given an opportunity, uh, Chair? Uh, he had yes. been on earlier, but it seems that there's some challenges with the platform. Uh, and um, in light of that, what I'm going to then ask is that we go straight to how we'd like to do the presentation. Is I'm going to ask um, Tandi Pele to introduce the presentation that uh, has been circulated to members of the committee. She will then indicate uh, who from the business community will lead a particular part of the presentation and provide the report on behalf of the Steel Master Plan team. Uh, we have a number of work streams that are chaired in a number of cases by representatives either of business or of government. And so these uh, representatives will be conveying the views of the uh, work streams and of the Steel Council. The Steel Council itself contains representatives of uh, the trade unions, of uh, business organizations and firms, as well as regulators, <coughs> state-owned companies, and uh, government officials. So may I then hand over to Tandi Pele, Chairperson. Thank you, Minister. Over to you, Ms. Pele. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Um, my, my camera is acting up this morning. Uh, it seems not to be working in front. Uh, can I apologize for that, Chairperson? Uh, good morning to yourself, Honorable Members, Honorable Minister, the representative of business and labor. Uh, maybe to start off by saying, um, probably Mr. Elias Manai is having connection challenges. He had called me just before the meeting. He's in Mpumalanga because of a crisis in his company. Uh, so hopefully he'll be able to join uh, as soon as he's got, he's got, uh, uh, he has sorted out the connection issues. Um, I think we'll start off on the slide uh, with the indulgence uh, from Minister, um, because the first few slides of the presentation, the Minister has really covered them in depth. And I think it's important that we give the committee a sense of what have we landed as a collective from the Steel Over Council uh, and the broader industry and labour. Uh, and also to give the committee a sense of where are we going in terms of uh, driving the implementation as per the implementation plan. The minister had already begun to introduce uh, the, the master plan. I think he has spoken about the concept itself. On the steel and metal fabrication master plan, uh, the, the main um, objective is that we want to guide the stabilization. I think the minister was very clear around what are the challenges that the industry is finding themselves um, in. Um, um, uh, we also want to create the platforms for growth and drive innovation in the value chain. Uh, in there, uh, obviously, is a because of the complexity of the value chain, uh, we have adopted the methodology of continuous improvement because it's not all possible to really get into full grips of all the actions that needs to be undertaken in such a, a, a diverse and complex um, sector. So we have adopted what we call uh, a master plan 1.0 um, with the intention that we will improve and add on the nuances of the industry. As we are implementing, we are gaining traction, we are building the partnership, we'll keep on uh, um, adding and really uh, implementing this continuous improvement uh, effort. In the current uh, plan, we've got about 75 uh, implementation actions. 
which are structured around six uh, work streams um, on the supply side, demand side, uh, exports, with a particular focus on how are we going to really drive the implementation of the continental free trade area, how are we going to really coordinate and consolidate uh, um, resources uh, in order to support the industry going forward. And obviously at, uh, for that, uh, we also have to be cognizant of inclusive growth, bringing along um, uh, issues of transformation and developing skills that are in line with where the industry is going. I think the minister talked a lot about how are we going to clean our industry going forward, the issues of 4IR. So therefore, we need to really uh, look at how do we also improve the, the, the workplace um, and really take our workers with as we are implementing and, 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 and really developing the sector going forward. So it's very much a very action-oriented plan, um, uh, which is based on identified competitiveness improvements in the firms themselves and in the industry as a whole. How are we going to work together to reduce the levels of uh, um, um, uh, imports and reposition the industry to really be resilient uh, in a very intense uh, global pressures, intense competition, and intense um, 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 uh, overcapacity that the minister has already alluded to. Tolu, um, uh, can you go to the next slide? So in terms of the social compacting framework, um, the minister has already, in one way or form, already spoken a, a bit on this, uh, that we, we all have to we come to the party with the intention of contributing to the good of uh, developing the sector going forward. So each partner in here must bring something to the bri. Uh, we use the analogy of bringing and brying. Uh, there are areas that the labor um, or our trade unions must help us to really improve areas of uh, productivity to bring stability in the industry. How do we deal with improving our skill space, um, working together with our, uh, our training providers to align the kind of a workplace that we would like to see going forward, uh, that it re is really focused on career pathing and enables worker participation and really creates core value addition and co-sharing with, 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 uh, with all uh, involved in the, in, in the value chain. Um, there's a role for the primary, primary steel producers. Obviously, the issues of, uh, of steel pricing uh, and supply challenges um, are still there. We need to create a path that really supports the competitiveness of the downstream industry. We need to improve on the grades and the quality of steels that we produce in the local market, improve our production efficiencies, and really at the key, at the core of what we need to be going forward is the issue about transitioning to the green uh, steel. Because in the number of markets, uh, the green agenda is no longer um, an option, it's a must. And therefore, for us to be able to really uh, become competitive and really um, secure our, our niche in the markets, we need to really evolve in the manner in which we are producing steel. There's a role for government. Uh, there's a lot of issues that we also need to unlock to enable the industry to be able to create the value and create the jobs that we need. Um, and for that, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, activities that we are doing around how do we improve the machinery in government um, to really uh, enhance um, the work that is being done by the private sector. Um, so there's issues that we are working on together with our SARS colleagues, and I think they will talk through the slide on the issues about how do we keep issues of illegal imports, misdeclarations. Uh, how do we provide a 
good package of industrial financing instruments that can really enable us to improve uh, the overall competitiveness of the sector. Um, key to our program, obviously, is the issues around localization. And localization for us is not only within government, also the private sector must embrace the idea that we need to work as a collective to increase aggregate demand, provide uh, a platform for the industry to be able to really um, grow and, 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 sup and sup uh, supply products both in the domestic market and use the domestic market to um, develop uh, niches that can really we can really um, position for the export uh, markets. In there, obviously, we have to be very uh, clear about we need to uphold the quality standards, the conformity assessments, uh, because for us to be able to be competitive, we need to produce the right products at the right price, deliver on time in the right qualities that the customers are looking for. Uh, the minister talked about the deployment of our trade instruments um, in order to level the playing field, uh, but I think he did make the point that this should be seen as, um, should be viewed as short-term measures. We need to look at what is the, our overall long-term competitiveness um, architecture to enable us to really compete both in the domestic market and uh, export markets. Uh, we do have to address the issues of pricing, of administered prices, um, both in the electricity space, in the logistics and infrastructure. On the downstream side, uh, for us to be really be able to really uh, uh, position ourselves in the growing uh, domestic and export markets, we need to really invest in improving our capacity and our capabilities. Uh, invest in technologies, uh, in you know, building a manufacturing ecosystem that is inclusive and brings along the worker uh, participation. Uh, and both on the downstream and the, uh, the upstream side, we also need to work with our government agencies to really assist them to build the technical capacity to enable government to be able to be effective in the measures that they need to work with with the industry. Uh, next slide, Tolu. Uh, can you just put the whole timeline, please? Um, we've already spoken a bit about this. So this is our evolution on where we are. We started off in 2020 with uh, Mr. And Dr. Fanarov really assisting with putting together the steel master plan through the engagements with industry and labor. Uh, in February, March, we adopted the master plan um, and the implementation plan. However, we could not physically launch the, 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 the master plan because of uh, the effects of COVID. However, the implementation started immediately with the launch of the six uh, work streams uh, where we have begun to really put in the machinery to drive uh, implementation. The official launch of the master plan, as the minister already indicated, happened in June 2020. Uh, so for today's purpose, we're going to take the committee through uh, our uh, eight months uh, of um, implementation. What are the key things that we have already uh, delivered? and are already beginning to yield the results uh, on the ground. And we will also appraise the committee on what is the work in progress, which will inform the kind of reporting that we're going to be doing going forward. Uh, next slide, Tolo. Uh, I think we've already spoken about this, that the master plan is configured in terms of six uh, focus areas. Uh, in the focus areas, obviously, we'll deal with uh, different issues in, as it relates to uh, the theme that uh, we are working on. I think the one emphasis that we would like to put on this one is that the issue of uh, the demand side. I mean, for us to be really, to be able to really uh, realize 
the growth opportunities in the industry. We need to deal with the issues of how do we create aggregate demand that can really uh, support all the efforts that we are making to uh, sustain the industry going forward. I mean, if you do not have a market that you are selling to, uh, you can be innovative, uh, you can have got good resources, but you need to produce a widget that should be able to be used by an end user elsewhere. So for us, uh, the issues about demand creation are very critical and demand is not necessarily about only how do we create demand in the domestic market, but how do we also uh, increase our expo export effort and, and, and really um, take advantages of uh, uh, opportunities that are going to be presented by the uh, African continental free trade area. Uh, move to the next slide, Tulu. So this is the crux of what we would like the committee uh, to uh, take home with. It's the work that we have already landed uh, in the last eight months uh, where we have already began to demonstrate impact on the ground. Uh, we have deployed our trade instruments in a manner that uh, it really, uh, we are working with industry where we are also develop attaching developmental commitments so that we don't always come to resorting to um, requesting for uh, protection, but we use uh, the levers that we have in our trade uh, policy um, uh, toolbox to enable the industry to uh, be able to have the space that, in, uh, that uh, it helps them to improve their overall competitiveness, improve their aggregate productive capacity investments. And through that, we are able to retain and create jobs. Uh, my uh, colleague from industry, uh, Mr. Um, uh, Harry Castle will talk through the export 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 scrap metals uh, uh, interventions. My colleague from SARS uh, will take the committee through the work that we've already done on how on dealing with illicit uh, trade. It will be done by uh, Mr. Godfrey um, Aloy. I'll come back to talk about what has been some of our industrial uh, financing support instruments we've already dispersed. Uh, I will talk through the details on the slide. Uh, we are beginning to see uh, uh, capacity uh, coming back on stream uh, with uh, working with the private sector and injecting um, industrial financing between ourselves, uh, IDC and NEF to really resuscitate our steel making capacity. Uh, and we'll give examples on where localization interventions are beginning to bear fruit uh, uh, through supporting local productive capacity uh, development uh, jobs and uh, deepening our SA capabilities. Next slide, Tulu. So in here, um, I think the point that the minister has already made that in the first phase of stabilizing the industry, we provided support to the upstream part of the industry. So through the master plan process, uh, we are implementing a policy shift in the second phase where we are considering policy tools, uh, trade policy tools to enhance downstream uh, uh, industries. Under the period under uh, report uh, reporting uh, between March uh, and December 2021, we've already implemented seven trade measures, mainly get towards uh, supporting the downstream industries. Uh, there is on the slide, uh, I won't talk through them. Um, I think it's important to note that uh, the effects of these uh, measures will be seen over time. I mean, some of them have been implemented as recent as last week, Friday. Um, on the 3rd of December. So the effect of it on the industry will evaluate it over time. And hopefully in the next uh, report to the committee, we'll be able to give a sense of how the measures have really assisted us to reduce imports on our value-adding segments of the industry. 
we are uh, really making use of uh, rebate facilities um, to really improve the, the supply um, of, of primary steels to uh, downstream industries uh, and ensure that uh, we are able to deal with the issues of pricing and supply shortages in the affected um, uh, value chains. Obviously, for us to be able to consider any trade measures, uh, it will be at the back of detailed independent investigations that come from ITEC, of which then as a department we then um, consider uh, based on the balance of facts in front of us and be able to make the decisions thereafter. Uh, Mr. Harry, I think the next slide, the next two slides is for you to talk through on the scrap interventions. Uh, good morning, uh, Honorable Chairperson, uh, Honorable Ministers, uh, Minister, and members of the Portfolio Committee. It is an honor to be here and address you all with regard to scrap policy and the much needed interventions on behalf of the industry in line with the Steel Master Plan. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take everybody through the slide and I have a few additional points which I've set out and um, will address the Portfolio Committee on today. So let's start at the beginning of the slide. The key successes, uh, scrap metal interventions, an export duty on scrap metal was launched 1 August 2021. And through the ITA Act with the price preference system, PPS was extended to 31 July 2023. The two instruments are implemented concurrently to ensure ad adequate quality scrap metal metals, strategic resources uh, available at competitive pricing for local processing by steel minimals, secondary smelters and foundries. These measures will contribute towards local beneficiation of scrap metals and restore supply stability for the industry, which is mainly located in the Kuruleni, Ethikweni and city of Cape Town. Example of enforcements, recently a scrap metal dealer who tried to export 10 containers of scrap metal out of South Africa without the necessary permits has been given a 600,000 rand fine by the Durban Magistrates Court. The dealer pleaded guilty to two counts of exporting steel scrap metal without obtaining an export permit. That's the contravention of the ITA Act and two counts uh, of making a false declaration, another contravention of the Customs and Excise Act. The Impact on the profitability and pricing um, has been for, for uh, well, sorry, um, yeah. yeah. So the impact on the profitability of the of the downstream uh, mini mills and manufacturers has been better affordability, affordability of scrap metal being a strategic resource as an it's an important feedstock, the most important feedstock in production of downstream metal due to the relatively low energy consumption. Also, it has a lower carbon footprint and the direct impact is low cost as input material is now cheaper. Uh, it, it, it allows for cheaper products to be manufactured uh, through cheaper raw material. And the concurrent system encourages expansions of downstream industry. I have a few points I'd like to add to this, which I'd like to talk to. Okay, fine. So the steel mills, uh, the access to, sorry. Okay, so I'll take you through the slide and then I'll carry on with my, my, my points. So scrap dealers and merchants, scrap recyclers are reporting double-digit growth in financial performance. Example in Simbi, which is a JSE-listed scrap merchant. Uh, this highlights, the, 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 these are highlights from their financial performance for 12 months ending um, August 20, sorry, this is not 12 months. This is actually six months, uh, just a correction uh, there, ending 
August 2021 include revenue is up 47.6% from contracts with customers from the interim period increased to 3.1 billion. Uh, and in 2020, uh, for the same period, they, they um, posted 2.1 billion. Gross profits, their gross profit is up by 41.8%, growing to 274.9 million uh, versus the 2020 period, same period, 193.8 million. And their operating profit is up 181.7% to 95.2 million versus 2020 at 33.8 million. Um, steel mills, the access to quality scrap at competitive prices has contributed to the sustainability of the local long products steel mills um, and mini mills. The enhancement of sustainability in their operations has increased competition and the competitiveness has been transferred into the pricing which supports the downstream sector. Long products in SA uh, are now priced on a cost basis and this move yielded significant benefits. By illustration, SCORE is selling locally manufactured equivalent wire rod product at a net X steelworks price that is approximately 5% below the Chinese FOB price. So this is a, a, an, an enormous achievement and, and very well done. Downstream uh, reduction in SA long products pricing to prices below those available in China on a dollar basis has created an internationally competitive downstream wire and wire rod products manufacturing center sector. For the first time in over a decade, SA can increase its capacity and supply to South Africa and Southern African markets, as well as uh, various export markets. Um, I would like to continue with a few points that I've written down um, in addition to to these points, if, if, if that is uh, acceptable, uh, Honourable yes, Chairperson. You may yeah, you may continue, Mr. Castle. Uh, th thank you very much. Um, Honourable Minister Patel's PPS as a policy has, in, um, has saved the local steel industry and its jobs as a further benefit, um, and as a further benefit has created a situation where South Africa's long products are some of the cheapest in the world. This policy, alongside Treasury's interventions on the export tax, have helped to protect and nurture and prevent South Africa's steel value chain from shutting down completely. This was indeed the case prior to the implementation of these, these measures. And we are seeing strength in all parts of the value chain, as evidenced by um, certain public listed companies posting best performances and showing growth, uh, particularly in the recycling sector. Uh, we too are a player in the recycling sector and we, we, we too are um, seeing uh, what we would call a level playing field and a fair um, and equitable um, business in environment. And it is my request and in line with the EU and many other countries such as the UAE, Zambia, India, China, and around 25 other countries that our precious and uh, our precious and greenest raw material being all scrap metal um, to be kept in South Africa for local beneficiation and downstream manufacturing on a long-term basis through legislation rather than regulation. This will serve to further develop and nurture large investment into the sector because it will ensure a long-term raw, long raw material availability for those who invest in the sector in South Africa. Members of the Portfolio Committee, this is where I request you play the strategic role in rolling out this proposed and much-needed legislation. Uh, 
It is also important to note that by curtailing exports of scrap metal, unscrupulous members of the recycling sector will find it more difficult to buy and pull and pull for state infrastructure as their markets via export will be more difficult to access through these measures. SARS, ITAC and Customs are doing an excellent job at stopping illicit exports and, and this has been evidenced in the press where they've successfully prosecuted recyclers who have been caught exporting without permits and trying not to pay duties. It cannot be stressed enough how important SARS, ITAC and Customs role is in, is in this as it ultimately determines the future viability of manufacturing industries in the sector and how important having all the necessary resources is to the ongoing success of the industry as a whole. I'm talking about resources applied to the um, enforcement of, of regulations and hopefully future legislation. The global advent of green steel and carbon tax, um, as, as mentioned by the Honourable Minister, is, is here. And the role that scrap plays uh, for us as a country in order to ensure that we um, are able to manufacture green steel as scrap is a green raw material um, and forms the backbone or the most important raw material input for the circular economy and, and in the manufacture of green, green steel. Long-term uh, local manufacturing uh, for, for export um, on account of carbon tax, as is being implemented uh, um, worldwide, uh, could be at risk if South Africa doesn't shift uh, gears in getting um, geared up for the, the green steel, um, the advent of green steel as what could happen is that taxes could be imposed on uh, all products manufactured from uh, steel that is not green. And this, is, this could significantly impact on very large steel manufacturing sectors downstream in South Africa, such as the automotive industry. In the USA and China, um, what we've seen uh, in recent past is the massive uh, capacity that they've installed to utilize scrap metal uh, in line with a carbon neutral future of metal manufacturing. So uh, the US, uh, China are, are practically installing enormous capacity for all metals um, that, uh, for all metals, but primarily focused on the utilization of scrap metal as the primary raw material rather than uh, mined uh, raw material or equivalents. Uh, the master plan is indeed a great tool and it has brought all stakeholders in the value chain together, working with government to give the much needed attention to matters that ultimately have a net positive impact on society, communities, through the, through the retention of much needed jobs, new job creation and skills development. And in that, uh, I'd like to then close my presentation. Thank you, Honourable Chair. Thank you, Mr. Castle. Over to you, Ms. Pele. Thank you, Chair. Um, I will request that my colleague from SARS talk through this slide, uh, Mr. Godfrey Baloy. Over to you, Mr. Baloy. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, members of parliament, members of the business community. Um, perhaps before I even talk to the slide, uh, maybe let me give some background insofar as uh, how SARS plays a role 
in ensuring that we level the playing field. Um, first of all, SARS recognizes the challenges that are faced by the steel industry. And as a result, internally, we have included the steel as a key industry that needs monitoring, as well as um, ensuring that we conduct interventions from time to time to ensure that we root out the illicit economic activities in this industry. Secondly, uh, as a result of that commitment, we also introduced measures that have resulted in SARS customs agreeing to monitor at the very least 35 tariff headings. And these 35 uh, tariff headings, we had inputs from the industry experts, even though uh, SARS uh, made the final determination insofar as the, what needs to be monitored. We also set a target for ourselves in terms of the 90% uh, of all declaration uh, to ensure that they are above the reference prices. And what you see uh, before you is as a result of that work in the interagency working group with the industry and out of our customs audit and the investigations. And as the minister has indicated that this master plan is fairly new, we had to quickly adapt uh, our resources to ensure that we play this role. Since uh, November 2020 to October uh, 2021, we've conducted a number of interventions and some of them include the 14 active risks uh, rules for testing the level of compliance. And out of that, we then identified the 4,858 alerts in terms of the declarations which were processed. And as my colleagues, uh, my colleague indicated previously in the slides uh, 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 before this one, we had the number of successes in terms of the prosecution, in terms of three cases. Um, both of the, uh, in fact, all of the cases resulted in convictions of five years, even though uh, with suspended sentences. We also conducted 1,079 uh, fiscal inspection across the country uh, with 953 uh, declarations that have been released as entered. Uh, over and above, we raise additional duties of 1.8 million and with over 380,000 uh, 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 in VAT, which we've uh, recovered. Um, besides these uh, statistics, uh, Minister and colleagues, the areas of concern in the industry, which is not on this slide, and uh, where SARS is, is, is busy conducting its work, it's on seven key uh, deliverables for SARS. The first one is the round tripping and also money laundering. The second one is the undervaluation. Thirdly is the misclassification. Fourth, number four is the rules of, of, of origins that are floated by the industry players. And then number five is the issue of the quality and standards. 
which the industry is pushing so hard uh, for us to implement. Uh, number six is the pricing structures that the uh, minister has alluded to. And seven, it's something that uh, perhaps has not been spoken about, but we think it's something that is an area of concern for us, which is the collaboration with the stakeholders. From SARS, we believe that we need to improve on, on the collaboration with the industry to an extent that we do have uh, frequent meetings so that we could share within the ambits of the law, bearing in mind that we are constrained by the secrecy provision. Uh, perhaps if I will touch on the progress on audits without touching on the contents, um, it's that the work that we do insofar as the audit is concerned, we have decided in SARS that we'll explore ways and means of us being able to share the outcomes of the work that we do so that the industry can be uh, updated upfront as to the impact that we are making. And this will do so without uh, perhaps revealing the names of the people that we are investigating or auditing. Secondly, we want to do it in such a way that we will generate uh, reports uh, at the high level where we could then reflect on the number of cases that we are dealing with and also the number of cases that we are we finalize successfully the values and so on, and also perhaps the work in progress um, in, in the number of cases that we're dealing with. And we believe that by doing so, we'll begin to close rank with the industry and all the industry players insofar as the work that we do. Because up to now, we have been struggling to ensure that we take the industry into the confidence. Apparently, the industry does not necessarily know, except the cases that will go to court uh, as to what SARS is doing to level the playing field. Insofar as the illicit trade as well, I think it's something that, especially on the round tripping and money laundering, we've also uh, had discussions internally to say uh, next year we would then reach out to the industry to say, whilst we can't share the information, what are the things that could give indicators high level that can ensure that the industry is protected as well? With regards to the under, uh, undervaluation, what we did, we set up a 90% uh, target and we continuously monitor this target. Insofar as the target is concerned, um, year to date up to October, we are monitoring the declarations and the industry and the minister and members of parliament will be pleased to know that since November 2020, we've uh, now improved our monitoring uh, percentages. We're sitting at uh, 88 percent uh, with a view of ensuring that by year end will be at least uh, 99% of the of, of, of the declarations. And we do so because it's important for us to ensure that the reference prices 
are kept current and confidential, but they also assist us to ensure that everything that is, de is declared or under-declared, we are able to, to monitor. Insofar as the misclassification is concerned, um, this has to do with the permit application to the DTIC, and uh, together with the uh, DTIC, we've picked up that there's a drastic decline since the introduction of the export permits. And this can result in various permutations. And one of the permutations could be that if there's a decline in the permit application, therefore there's a high likelihood of the misdeclaration of exported con consignment. So internally at SARS, we have made it a point that we do the monitoring. But what has also helped us is that the industry has also volunteered to train some of our customs uh, officials, and the training has started in, in earnest. The unfortunate thing is that due to the COVID regulations, the numbers are limited, but we continue to do so. Uh, regarding the rules of origins, uh, where false uh, origin declaration to avoid paying duties on fastness are uh, picked up, SARS is working with the industry as well. We're not doing great in this instance, but we believe that continuously working with the DTIC and the industry will investigate the transaction to an extent that we can reduce the risk to an acceptable level. Um, I also highlighted the issue of the quality and standards or standards and quality. Um, for SARS to be able to make an impact in this area, we will work with the industry to ensure that the, in terms of the standard uh, regulatory authority, uh, some of these standards appear on the PR list, uh, list so that we are able to intervene. Otherwise, it makes it difficult at this point in time, but that, that, this is work that is uh, underway which we believe um, in the near future will be able to contain. And lastly, on the pricing, uh, like all the uh, revenue authorities around the world, uh, ours is to monitor that is in legislation. And most of our work is basically focused on the uh, uh, various components that are influencing the uh, pricing. And SARS follows the evaluation method that is stipulated by the World Trade Organization. At the very least, we are bound to accept the transactions at face value. And if the importer can provide relevant documentation and proof beyond reasonable doubt, we are bound to accept that. However, we believe that the reference pricing which, the pricing, which has been developed with the inputs from the in industry, is one of the indicators that will uh, actually help us to detect the under-invoicing uh, under of the inputs in, 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 in this sector. And working with the industry will help us to win it as well. Um, I would like to pause there, Jeff, and thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Baloy. Over to you, Ms. Pele. Oh, 
sorry about that chairperson. I was busy talking while my mic was on mute. I will go very quickly on these two slides. Uh, obviously, as part of our industrial policy toolkit, industrial financing is very important that we are able to provide the financial resources to crowd in private sector investments uh, in order to create the core value that I spoke about in my introductions. Um, Chairperson, uh, on this slide, we give a picture of the support being provided by the DTIC since the beginning of March to November this year. We have supported 11 projects of which we have uh, leveraged uh, 1.3 billion private uh, investment. Of the 11 projects, nine are in the automotive space, uh, which we have supported through the AIS or the Automotive uh, Incentive Scheme uh, program. Uh, and for, for, for us, this is beginning to show the, uh, the, the coordination that is needed between the different master plans. Uh, because in the automotive uh, master plan, we talk about increasing uh, the level of uh, component manufacturing and increasing the level of local content. And with us providing the instruments to really support the component manufacturing, we are beginning to have an ecosystem that demonstrates how we are really implementing industrial policy in a coordinated manner. Obviously, the issue about black industrialists is very important. Uh, of the 11 projects, two are the black industrialist projects, one in automotive space, one in the fabrication space. Uh, with this instrument, uh, Chair, we've been able to sus uh, sustain about 2.3 uh, um, jobs, and we are in the path to create about 100 new jobs. Uh, Chair, uh, in, the, in the annexure, uh, we have also demonstrated the, uh, a broader list of the black industrialists that we have um, supported in this value chain in the previous um, uh, reporting cycle. Uh, so the committee can have an opportunity to look at um, a spread of uh, um, um, uh, industrialists that have been supported through the various instruments of the department. The next slide. On this one, uh, Chair, we are demonstrating the work that has been done by the IDC. Um, uh, obviously, the value chain is quite vast, so it will swivel between uh, primary metals and um, mining processing activities to machinery and equipment, uh, automotive space. Um, in there, we are demonstrating the new uh, uh, projects that we are supporting uh, and also the expansions of the existing um, projects. Uh, and important to know that um, because of the issues of uh, global overcapacity and the decrease in demand, we do have firms that are in distressed positions. So part of the support package that we are providing is also to provide distress funding to a number of manufacturers so that in the process, we don't talk about uh, only um, sustaining or develop or, or supporting new investment, but we also retain our current industrial base. So that's the suite of the, the transactions that the, uh, the IDC has, um, has, has, has been uh, involved in or has approved or since the beginning of this financial year. In total, they have approved 3.2 billion of which is going to assist uh, to create uh, um, 1.5, almost 1.5 uh, thousand direct jobs. Next slide, so. On this one, can I request um, um, Mr. Johan Berger from the High Court Industrial Park to talk through the next slides. It will be very quick, uh, Chairperson, um, Mr. Mr. Berger. Uh, thank you, Tandi, uh, honorable members and minister.
just by way of a just a brief introduction of how I felt. It was established in 1966 by Anglo-American, and it operated uh, very successfully for you know the best part of uh, 50 years or so, until 2007 when it was acquired by Everest, the Russian group. Um, Everest um, continued and sustained to make sustained losses for for the following six years. And to make a long story short, um, I felt at to file for business rescue in 2015. So at that stage, this, uh, this important asset was almost lost and uh, almost being scrapped. Um, but to try and preserve the infrastructure, you know, such as the power reticulation, um, water, gas, buildings, etc., uh, for a possible future restart, I felt was converted into an industrial park. Um, with the support of the then EDD, uh, IDC funding of about 150 million at the time, own funding and own technical skills, a contract manufacturing agreement was concluded with AMSA in about 2017 um, to produce structural steel. So the mall uh, was restarted then um, and is still operating very successfully today, producing large structural steels, which is used in our primary economy, um, as well as uh, the development of, of rail. Um, recently, a very uh, uh, important uh, agreement was concluded when a, a young company, Robus Steel, this is a black-owned entity, acquired the large primary iron-making facilities, as well as the plate, plate, and steel, plate mill and the steel plant from Heifelt. So this is a very important uh, development, um, and it will secure an additional thousand plus minus thousand jobs that will ultimately see the Eiffel complex employ again over 2,500 people with permanent and you know high quality uh, jobs. Um, one has to uh, you know caution that that these ventures are not easy, and lots of hard work will have to be put in. Uh, Robust Steel will require funding of around 1.6 billion rand to, to do this successfully. Um, and, um, you know, as I said earlier, this, this, these assets are of primary importance to, to our country. Um, and it will require support, both funding um, as, as well as market support for a venture like this to, to be successful. Um, Tandy, that, that largely concludes uh, my contributions. Thank you, Mr. Bader. Um, on another matter, uh, Honorable Chairperson, um, we also had a, 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 a steel mill, mini mill in, based in Cape Town uh, that also went into business rescue uh, because of financial difficulties and the dip in the global markets which resulted in the mill not uh, you know, meeting the financial requirements. Uh, it ended up in business rescue. Uh, as of uh, November 2021, uh, the mill has been taken over by um, a Tanzanian uh, group, uh, which for us, it begins to demonstrate uh, the cross-border um, value chain development uh, with the Tanzanian group investing in this uh, Cisco mill uh, will be producing the pellets in the local market and uh, supplying their facility in Tanzania to do the uh, rolling products in their mill in Tanzania. 
uh, so we are really beginning to see the the the, the importance of working uh, with our partners on the continent to really develop key industrial projects uh, that can be of the benefit for ourselves as South Africa and the host countries um, uh, elsewhere on the continent. At the peak of production, um, this facility is going to re-employ the 125 um, uh, full-time uh, employees. Um, and uh, the group for, for, for the purposes of putting the context uh, better, is one of uh, the largest um, high tensile steel rebar producers uh, on the East uh, Africa continent. And it is really a good story to tell that we are beginning to really work as uh, in a coordinated manner with investors on the continent uh, to be able to bring the, the, the bigger efforts to the industry. Um, uh, I'm going to run through a couple of uh, uh, examples, uh, Jefferson, on the work that we are doing on localization. Um, next slide. Um, uh, the first one, um, at the back of the rail recapitalization program, uh, TE, um, or Transit Engineering, um, is responsible for the building and refurbishment of the wagons. Um, uh, they have recently issued letters of awards uh, for uh, wheels that goes on to the, the, the carriers of which a split award is considered for a 34-inch size wheel between score or what is known today as Cast Products South Africa, and the Naledi Ring Rollers, which is one of our black industrialists that we have supported in the past. The two suppliers together with uh, Transcendent Engineering are in, contra in contract negotiation stage with the uh, outcome uh, anticipated in the new year. Um, they are also they also need the 36-inch size wheel uh, for heavy haul lines, of which a portion of it is already been uh, considered for award to Nalevi Ring Rollers. A decision is, been, uh, is yet to be made on the remainder part of the contract. This has been made possible because of the local content requirements uh, under the designation of uh, rolling stock um, under the triple PFA. Uh, the second example, Jefferson, uh, in the in the energy space, uh, STP Smith Power Matter is one of our large power transformers producers in the country. They were previously awarded the contract by ESCOM, but in March 2021, they suffered um, a, a set incident where their factory bent. Uh, they could not fulfill the contractual obligations to supply the class one and the class two units. Uh, we we engage with the OEM to say that the alternative cannot be to import um, in your global sub, uh, you know ambit of uh, your companies, but let's rather look for local uh, uh, OEMs that can really be able to produce the, uh, the the transformers locally. They went into a negotiation with Actom, and after then um, they have subcontracted the five units to Actom, which has really enabled Actom to bring back uh, workers that were on short time. And it will really enable us to also achieve our local content uh, um, or local manufacturing requirements as per the transformer designations. The next one, on the, on the developer side, um, uh, as the committee would recall, many couple of months ago, we came and appraised the committee on some of the work that is happening on the passenger side, uh, passenger rail. Um, there was a big contract that was uh, entered into between Prasa and Ibella uh, Consortium uh, to produce 600 train sets. Um, at this point in time, Ibella is achieving 
62% of the local content requirements. But in this financial year, they are employing about 1.8 direct, em uh, direct employees, with, which is an increase from a 1.5 uh, in the previous year. Uh, the recent uh, investment being made is in a, in a traction motor facility to replace the traction motors that are currently fitted on, or the, to, to, to build traction motors for the coaches that are gonna be built going forward. Um, of the trains that are already uh, been, uh, are already on the rail track, the traction motors were imported from France. So this is a good uh, import replacement project and it's going to enable us to create the uh, capacity locally and create about 90 uh, new jobs going forward. Uh, we have also been in engagement with Transnet. We have uh, nudged them to really uh, assist us in the, the, in the disposal of their scrap metal to ensure that we uh, to ensure that that scrap metal is made available um, at affordable prices for local consuming um, uh, industries, uh, so that we are able to really uh, support the move to, towards green green greening of the industry and uh, and, and secure supply our foundries, the mini mills, and the secondary smelters. Next slide. Uh, one example in here, we have got a, a, a competitiveness enhancement program that we are implementing as a DTI to support import replacement. With a very small seed funding that we have provided to a foundry uh, based in Ferenaheng, the foundry was able to make their own investment of about um, Seven million uh, in on new tooling, which has enabled them to really secure um, big contracts in the automotive space from four EMs, and uh, and has enabled them to also diversify their product lines. Now they are support, supplying into um, the uh, the lighting market. Uh, this is a boundary that was uh, in 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 trouble, um, so the investment has enabled them to to retain the jobs. And it's got an opportunity to absorb additional uh, 20 uh, odd uh, workers when the new contract commences in the new financial year. Um, obviously, accreditation, as I've indicated in my introduction, accreditation and certification are important, especially if you're going to uh, sub supply complex markets such as the petrochemicals, uh, high pressure. Uh, points in our uh, energy infrastructure. We have worked with a small company in, um, in, in Cape Town uh, where we have assisted them to identify um, uh, certification requirements to enable them to get the necessary approval from ESCOM. Since doing that work, they were able to um, secure um, uh, work from ESCOM uh, and now they have been put on the ESCOM um, uh, preferred supplier list and will be considered for further work going forward. Uh, LVSA uh, group, uh, it's a black industrialist uh, group that is producing valves. Um, uh, as late as September 2021, they were recommended for accreditation for API standards, which will enable them to supply products into the petrochemical space. So this really emphasizes and underscores the important work that we need to be doing with SEPs to ensure that we have got the necessary technical infrastructure, uh, testing uh, um, facilities that really enables the industry to meet the necessary quality requirements and the standards that are needed in complex markets, uh, as I've given examples, to enable the industry uh, to be able to supply um, much more competitively with the right certification. Um, 
So um, yeah, I, I think the lead administrator is here in the meeting, uh, and I think it's important we emphasize that we are having meaningful conversations with SEPs uh, to begin to redirect where the infrastructure uh, programs ought to be directed to, uh, to reduce the cost of doing business for industry and to enable uh, industry and, uh, and, and SEPs to reduce duplication in testing infrastructure and work more as a you know, coordinated manner that really enable us to really muscle the, 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 the resources from the private sector together with the, with the little bit that we have in the government side to be able to provide the industry with the right uh, support. The next slide. Um, I wanted to give the industry co colleagues an opportunity just to flag where are we in terms of the different work streams, um, Honorable Chairperson. We're not going to fly the, the coming slides. Uh, we would rather have a conversation so that we can save time for the committee uh, members, Honorable Committee members, to be able to engage with the presentation. So if you allow, uh, Honorable Chairperson, I will call on my colleague from industry, Mr. Charles Dednam, just to talk two minutes on the work that we are doing on supply-side measures uh, outside the ones that we've already landed, so that we give you a feel of the, the depth of the work that we are doing, the work streams, so that we can also begin to anticipate the kind of reporting that we're going to be doing going forward. Thank you, Mr. Dednam. Um, thank you, Honorable Che. Uh, thank you, Tandi. Honourable Minister and, and members of, of the committee. Um, the supply side measurements is basically focused to improving the steel availability and to focus on the, on the sustainability and the viability of the industry um, in, in supplying product to, to the downstream, but also keeping up the standards at which the product is then manufactured and then delivered to the end user is also very much important. So in the, in, in the actions that I'm, I'm touching on, we'll all deal with these matters. And, and luckily, my, uh, some of the previous speakers has actually done a lot of the work that I've, um, that's on my slide. So if we can move on to the first slide. Sorry, sorry, Chairperson, with your indulgence, I didn't want us to go through the slides in the just to save time. So let's rather let the industry talk high level on the okay. work. Yeah. So, so, if you can go back to the previous slide, thank you. Thank you, Tony. Um, okay, so the the issues that we dealt with and that was actually delivered on was scrap has already been dealt with. We also we also deal dealt with the, the extension of the PPS. Um, I think the other two matters that has actually uh, came about is basically to improve the availability and to deal with the sustainability of the industry in, in dealing with load sharing um, instead of, of, um, um, of load, uh, of, 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 of the load sharing amongst the steel makers. Um, so a whole program has been developed so for, for a much more elegant way in, in dealing with load uh, sharing, uh, which the industry currently uh, opted to postpone until next year. And the reason for that is basically to address the pent-up demand and, and enhance the availability of supply. 
The other, the other issue that has been dealt with is also to up the standards of the products being delivered in, in, in the marketplace itself. Um, and SAT has actually um, produced new standards on roofing and cladding um, for improved uh, product supply into the, into the industry. Uh, the NRCS is currently reviewing these standards and, and um, to ensure that um, uh, that the standards becomes mandatory um, in most cases, uh, specifically on the import importation of Gulf products, like uh, illustrated in the in the section where SARS dealt with it. Um, we encounter quite a lot of substandard product currently entering the market. Um, the next one is the, the rebate interventions. I think it is a communication issue that we need to, um, need to, to get ahead with. Um, and ITAC did a, a brilliant job in actually um, uh, telling the, the, the users in the market where they can actually apply for rebates, uh, specifically um, connected with steel availability, where steel availability is a problem um, and they have to import the, the material uh, then to, to get away from the taxes that's been levied on the, on the product itself. Um, there was also a huge drive uh, from, um, to optimize the total capacity utilization in the country by um, also bringing on board the, the export potential of the downstream. And uh, OMSA has actually reviewed the, the value added rebate offering to the downstream to extend the period in which they are actually offering the rebate and also covering the areas which previously they did not cover on the overland Africa um, areas uh, to enhance the, the offering the current um, downstream exporters are making. Also, in uplifting the sustainability and viability of, of the industry itself, we are currently looking into the, um, the supply of iron ore and coking coal um, in relation to the pricing that's uh, currently being offered to them. Uh, th that um, investigation has been uh, completed and we are currently busy uh, rounding it off um, to table it in, for consultation between the DTIC and the DMRE uh, to take it further. Um, as, as mentioned previously, we, we also try to um, enhance the communication uh, between the industry and the users of the product in the market, telling them what exactly is happening in the market itself. Um, and the industry launched a communication piece um, in August this year, uh, which is re uh, received quite well by, by all the players in the market, um, telling them what is happening with regard to steel in the international market, availability and shortages of steel, how the local malls are performing, and so on. We've also done a high-level uh, supply-demand matrix uh, to see if we can actually supply the demand um, of, of the product itself. 
uh, I think on a high level, uh, South Africa is more than capable of supplying demands uh, as our total capacity of steelmaking is in the region of um, roughly about 8.5 million tons, of which the, the domestic market is only utilizing uh, roughly about four, four and a half million tons, which is about 50% of the total steelmaking capacity. Um, so the rest can be actually channeled into the supply of the, of, of the regional demand itself. Uh, diversification of the, of the steel plants is also underway. Um, uh, we've got a, we've got a, a lot of uh, minimals currently producing long steel products uh, with, uh, with a single supply, actually not a single, is uh, AMSA and Columbus currently supplying the, the flat steel product side. Um, and that has actually been enhanced now by the new um, investment on thin gauge hot roll coil at the, at the score plant that will be in, in operation in early next year. Um, so IDC has also launched a couple of initiatives um, and is currently um, linking into the, um, into the supply of, of raw materials into the mills itself with, um, uh, with investments currently in the DRI manufacturing arena um, and some more exploring on opportunities with mining, um, mining uh, companies to see if, if there are some more opportunities that we can actually pursue in, in that particular area. We are also looking at the um, localization of metallurgical coal currently being imported uh, predominantly by, by AMSA at this point in time um, through the investments and, um, and feasibility studies that's underway in the Mercado project um, in, in the northern province. Um, furthermore, we are looking also at the, at the greening of, of the industry um, and um, some of the some of the moles that uh, were decommissioned are now um, very much under scrutiny to see if there's some turnaround potential in bringing them back as um, as as a green production unit, such as the Saldana plant down in the Western Cape. Um, so that is also well underway. So that is all I can actually add on to the supply side for now, Sunday. And uh, um, if there are any other questions, I welcome to ask. Thank you, Mr. Dednam. The next one, uh, Ms. Pele. Thank you, Honorable Chairperson. The next one is Mr. Sagrin Moodley uh, with the support of Philip, who will uh, um, only take three minutes. On the, uh, on the demand side. Segrin? Uh, thank you, Tandi. Uh, very good morning to all. Uh, within the uh, demand side stream, uh, we have two uh, work groups, uh, one focusing on local demand opportunities, and the other is on compliance and enforcement. Um, with respect to the activities uh, of the compliance and enforcement work group, uh, we have been engaged in establishing the local content compliance unit. Uh, the aim of the unit is to ensure that local demand is satisfied locally whilst developing the capacity and the competitiveness to export. 
The unit's primary role is to investigate uh, and refer suspected non-compliance of localization uh, to the respective SOEs and organs of state to act within their mandates. Uh, thus far, uh, we've established the management committee uh, comprising of members of industry, labor, and government. We've also partnered with uh, Proudly South Africa to perform, uh, to perform the coordination, uh, communication, and marketing functions. Uh, we've, we've partnered with the South African Bureau of Standards uh, to do the local content uh, verification. And we've also partnered with various industry associations uh, to serve as subject matter experts. So as you can see, we drive in partnerships with various stakeholders to ensure that we work together to grow our economy and create jobs. Uh, this unit is funded uh, through uh, the Steel Industry Compliance Support Fund. This is funding made available by the steel producers uh, for the benefit of the entire sector. Uh, my colleague, uh, Johan Stradum, will speak uh, more about the fund in his resource mobilization segment. Um, the second deliverable within the compliance and enforcement work group is the prior surveillance system. Uh, the aim of the system is to proactively gather information on import trends so we can better respond uh, to imports on the local market. To this end, uh, we've already evaluated the systems successfully implemented in the EU, the USA and India. Uh, we've already proposed a pilot uh, being uh, on a corrugated, high, a corrugated iron sheeting. This proposal has been accepted by the illicit work uh, our trade group, the demand side work group, as well as the Steel Oversight Council. It's now being forwarded to ITEC for implementation. Uh, I'll now hand over for Philippa to share with you more on the local demand opportunities. Thank you. Thank you, Sagrin. I am Philippa Rodseth, uh, talking to interventions on the local demand uh, work stream. We have been working on developing a steel demand schedule for projects to enable the um, supply side to plan accordingly. We have just finished a draft um, model um, looking at renewable energy demand for equipment, um, high-level equipment and materials um, to supply into the renewable energy build program according to um, solar PV and wind, modeled according to IRP 2019, so in other words, conservative. We still have some way to go on identifying um, a viable infrastructure project pipeline, um, uh, noting projects that are either bankable or funded by government and or um, development finance institutions and commercial banks. We are also looking at localization opportunities for engineered products. We have worked into detail on the um, engineered products, steel products and um, steel piping um, uh, value chain and identified certain areas um, where products are already designated or could be uh, designated. Street lights and floodlights being an immediate opportunity in that 80% um, procurement is um, from governments across municipalities, Eskom and Sandrail. This is not um, to, to note that our only strategy is to look to government procurement.
measurement and designation. We continue to also try to understand and identify private sector projects and procurement value chains with a view to um, supplying locally manufactured products. On the automotive sector, we are working together with um, the um, automotive master plan with particular reference to their localization um, stream and their project deliverables, milestones and, and opportunities that fit within ArcelorMittal's um, equivalent grades or current capacity of steel and what that can be done in automotive manufacture is um, making headway. Um, there is also a mining digitization and localization project that we are implementing um, to better understand procurement within the mining industry supply chain. There we are working with the stakeholders on the one hand being um, Minerals Council representing the mining houses and the procurers um, and the producers and local manufacturers on the other to better understand what is being procured and where there are opportunities for um, local uh, manufactured products. And then the last product, uh, last project in the um, local demand work stream deals with rail localization. There we are focusing on two particular projects at the moment. The first is overhead transmission equipment. There's a huge amount of um, procurement by way of um, maintenance and refurbishment that needs to be done by both PASA and Transnet. And then secondly, there's a um, heavy rail track localization study that's being conducted and overseen by the IDC. Um, uh, involving a techno-economic study to assess capability and capacity requirements to meet transnet demand um, with the um, view to, to assessing setting up a local manufacturing facility. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, um, Ms. Pele. Thank you, Honourable Chair. The next one will be done by uh, Mr. Johan Stradom on resource mobilization. Mr. Stradom. Good morning, Honourable Chairperson, Minister Patel, members of the Portfolio Committee and industry colleagues. Uh, please allow me a quick feedback on the Steel Industry Fund and the progress thereof. The Steel Industry Fund uh, aimed to address two main issues. The first one is the steel usage leakages. Uh, this includes the tracking uh, of the compliance to the designation and localization targets. Uh, it also aims to curb illicit trade, which includes under invoicing of imports, duty evasions, and most declarations, etc. The aim, therefore, is to preserve and maintain the local steel market through the compliance fund. And I'll speak more about the uh, compliance fund and progress made thereof. The second portion, which the steel fund aims to address, is the growth stimulation, um, mainly through value-added export promotion and the uh, replacement of imports. The aim, therefore, is to grow the demand for steel by using uh, and increasing the downstream uh, fabrication. Uh, a not-for-profit company have been established and registered um, for uh, the steel fund. Um, we have also appointed a board to oversee the process and ensure that we achieve the desired results. 
the funding of the fund is coming from industry um, and it has been agreed by all the uh, main local primary steel producers in South Africa to contribute as from January next year to rent per ton so that we can fund the compliance fund and the work thereof. Uh, the fund um, will be launched and be active, like I mentioned, as from the 1st of January 2022. Um, and the fund will support the compliance unit of Mr. Moodley um, and uh, what is mentioned earlier with immediate effect um, and as a priority. Uh, the first project has been approved by the board um, as mentioned by Mr. Moodley, and it will also take effect then uh, early January next year. We will continue our work uh, on the growth fund uh, stimulation uh, with urgency as from next year. I thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Ms. Pele, who's the next presentation? Honorable uh, Jay, may I request that we swap the two around? Can we do the HR or human resource development and skills and training first? Um, and then I will do the, 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 the export one uh, after Ms. Ms. Um, Nongonzo Mulai. Okay, so it's over to you, Ms. Mulai. Thank you, Honorable Chairperson, Honorable Members of Parliament, Minister, DG, and all other colleagues. Good morning. As has been said earlier, much of our work in this area is still in process. We focus mainly on four areas, namely productivity improvements and wage stability. The second area is exploring options for collaboration to retain and create jobs. So it's more job creation and job retention and it's collaboration between all the role players. Uh, the third one uh, is optimizing training and skills development, considering that industry does have the capacity to train, government has a capacity, and uh, uh, labor as well, or organized labor. And the third one is developing a program to increase the representation of African people and women in management and uh, highly skilled jobs. So as part of our key interventions to improve industrial relations in the sector, we have prioritized productivity improvement and to that end, the industry and labor, specifically NUMSA and Solidarity, have agreed to work with Productivity SA. And uh, the view there is that Productivity SA is better placed and better resourced to lead the productivity improvement programs. Uh, uh, they have already prepared a proposal which we are now considering as a work stream. We were considering that for approval as well as implementation. The second uh, stream of work here, we've conducted and concluded a survey. Uh, that's a survey on industrial relations as well as HR uh, challenges. Key proposals are now being uh, made to, to as a response or linked to what came out of the survey. So we're currently developing a set of recommendations and some of those recommendations will have policy implications. Uh, there's ongoing discussion between industry and the unions on stabilization, career as well as uh, career pathing and worker participation. Uh, in the new year, we'll zoom in and focus on this work uh, 
uh, with the aim to develop a concrete program because we do need to get to a point where we have firm recommendations which have buy-in and uh, which has buy-in of all stakeholders, specifically for the good of the country, of course, and the industry. Uh, on training optimization, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, I'm kind of uh, sick for now. Uh, on training optimization and development of skills, industry has identified strategic trades and gaps in the system. We've initiated collaboration with the Department of Higher Education and Training to identify and finalize key trades that we will be piloting. So as a work stream, we've finalized a priority uh, skills program or priority skills development program, which uh, we will be rolling out immediately to enhance skills development and training. And we hope that through this plan, the country could see visible impact and improvements within a period of five years. But of course, it might take longer for trades that have a longer training timeframes, such as bachelor's degrees and so forth. Uh, we've made proposals on the role of industry and unions uh, in helping training institutions, TVETs in particular, to update and modernize the curricula to contribute in the training of retrain, sort of training and or retraining of uh, TVET lectures. So it's more a train the trainer type of a program. Uh, on the development of TVET colleges, technical infrastructure, because the challenge there was that some of the machinery or the machines that are used for training are outdated. So we are exploring options on how industry can also contribute towards modernizing uh, uh, the, the training capability, including uh, uh, machines or machinery. Uh, we're also looking at creative or creatively using uh, existing policy instruments and resources to identify uh, uh, our, our required resources. Uh, but, but, but where there's a need for policy amendment, we will make uh, relevant recommendations. Some of those relate to how we utilize BEE scoring. Uh, we are sharply focusing on the role of industries, training centers, uh, because there has been a challenge uh, that uh, the, the input or capacity or contribution of industry in training is declining, yet the uh, industry has uh, training centers and uh, e.g. AMSA, Transnet and so forth and we are looking at the introduction of rebates or rewards or recognitions uh, such as using BEE points for participating companies and basically ours is to try and encourage industry to play a meaningful role and assist to open up uh, more training facilities for technical and artisanal training. And those are just a few areas we've been working on in the past few months and uh, we'll now be implementing and when necessary we'll pilot some of these uh, recommendations. Uh, but in the next year we'll really sharply focus on uh, uh, um, stabilizing the relations in the industry and looking and zooming in more even on productivity. And uh, thank you very much.
Thank you, Ms. Molai, and we wish you a speedy recovery. Thank you for joining us, even though you're not 100%. We appreciate it. Ms. Pele. Thank you, Nobuchi. Um, I will just give three main comments on the uh, uh, African continental free trade area. What we have uh, uh, recognized as a work stream is that there is no one size fit all strategy that can really meet the diverse needs of the industry from an export development uh, perspective. Therefore, we have agreed that we will work on segments of the industry uh, that have got similarities and is easier to group. Uh, you would uh, appreciate to a person that consumables, um, commodity type of uh, products, fabricated products have got different complications when uh, looking for export opportunities. And therefore, it's important that as we are working through how we're going to um, make use of the opportunities presented by the continental free trade area, we are really doing it in a manner that it begins to identify key markets, key products, and we work systematically on identifying where can we um, open up the markets, what are the challenges, and how do we partner with the uh, uh, countries on the continent uh, to enable us to achieve the overall um, policy, policy objectives as articulated in the CFTA. Um, so, Chairperson, uh, in that is still uh, very much a work in progress. Um, we have uh, issued out a, a survey where we are trying to understand from the industry where do they see opportunities in which countries on the continent, where are the projects that we ought to be prioritizing uh, so that we are able to really come back and say, oh, for this type of products in this value chain, this is the kind of an export strategy we ought to be um, uh, adopting. Honorable um, Chairperson, on, on, as the Minister was introducing uh, in his introductory remarks, he talked about the difficulties with uh, 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 really accruing the benefits under the AGOA uh, 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 program with the Section 232 that we introduced during the Trump administration, um, which have had an effect on our industry in, in one form or the other. Um, uh, as the committee would recall, in 2018, uh, there were uh, import duties with, which were introduced on 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 imports of steel um, and imports of uh, aluminium um, um, going into the USA, uh, of which uh, we we worked with the industry to um, look for ways that we can be exempted um, under this uh, this uh, this uh, policy dispensation. Uh, on products that are more niche, uh, that the, uh, the U.S. market just does not have the capabilities on, we're able to really uh, get the exemptions. Uh, but the exemptions um, are only valid for a period of 12 months with the possibility of renewal, but we have to go through the entire process um, of requesting um, the, 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 the exemption. So uh, as part of the engagement with the U.S., um, uh, we have agreed that we'll have more streamlined uh, conversations on how we can learn from how the EU has uh, managed to lift the, 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 the conditions on 232, how can we draw the learnings and how do we ensure that we can um, maybe make some of those learnings applicable to South Africa so that when we engage with the US uh, counterparts, we're able to put a coherent story on the table on uh, how the, 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 the section 232 has affected us and uh, in, honestly, in some areas, uh, we do have the capabilities in South Africa to make 
of which the U.S. doesn't have, and therefore uh, we need to find a space um, in our uh, trade uh, policy relations with the U.S. to find a touching point on that. Jefferson, um, on the issue of transformation, is very much still work in progress. Uh, we did not have, have any uh, short-term commitments that we needed to do in the first uh, six months of the implementation plan. So for today's conversation, we're not going to talk about that. Uh, but in the next report to the committee, we will definitely put the issues on the table. Um, obviously, transformation is key. Uh, as we are talking about uh, you know, bringing sustainability and growing the industry, it has to be at the back of how we also do that um, um, and, 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 and really push uh, inclusive growth and participation of previously disadvantaged uh, um, uh, participants, including the black industrialists. So, Jefferson, um, just because we do not have a, a, a talk on the transformation, it doesn't mean it's not an important pillar of the master plan. Uh, we will um, appraise the committee in the next uh, reporting of the, of the master plan. Uh, Chairperson, I will hand over to the Minister um, for closing remarks. I was hoping that Mr. Munahe was back on the platform, but it seems as if his connection where he is is quite unstable. Um, uh, so uh, I will hand over to the Minister. Uh, with your permission, Chair. Thank you very much, uh, Minister. Well, thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Chairperson. It's been, as you, as the committee would have noted, quite a lengthy presentation. And um, it, I hope, uh, has given enough of a sense of what we're trying to do with the Steel Master Plan. It is a framework agreement. Many of the details do get fleshed out as we implement. Uh, we will have setbacks. We will have challenges. There's no question about that. Uh, but this report highlighted some early progress that has been made. There's a number of people who are in the uh, Zoom platform that we were not able to accommodate to make remarks. I'd like to uh, particularly acknowledge um, Bernie Fanaroff and the uh, excellent work that he's done in uh, engaging with the business community and with the trade unions. I know that Ivan Jims joined us at the start, but was not able to stay throughout as a result of a NUMSA central committee meeting that he's attending. And I know that Ilias Monache has had some, some challenges of staying on the platform. So I'd like to, um, to uh, uh, suggest, Chairperson, that uh, we conclude the presentation now, that uh, in the course of uh, questions, I may lob one or two of the questions to those uh, members of the private sector we have not had an opportunity uh, to comment. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Chairperson, for this opportunity to set out uh, the work. And may I then hand back to you. Thank you very much um, uh, to you, Minister, and uh, the team who has presented to us today. That is our steel and metal, metal fabrication master plan presentation. You say it's 1.0, 1.0. So uh, it's a work in progress, and I think we had a good view of the partnership that exists in um, turning around the steel sector. Um, uh, can I now open to, uh, to committee members to, uh, for questions, for clarities, for comments? 
Um, I've noted the hand of Honorable Cuthbert. Can I note other hands, please? No other hands. Oh, Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns. Yes. Okay, let's go with those. Sorry, I, I can't raise my hand. Uh, okay, Mr. McPherson. Honorable yeah. McPherson. So we have those three hands for now. Uh, also, Mr. Mbuyani, Honorable Mbuyani. Thank you. Over to you, Honorable Cuthbert. Thanks very much, Chairperson, and uh, thank you to all the stakeholders and the Minister for this morning's presentation. Um, I have quite a lengthy input uh, because I believe there was a, you know, a serious amount of content that was covered in this particular meeting. Um, maybe just to start off, I'm still quite perplexed by the Trump argument, and I know the then DG, uh, you know, Mr. Lionel October, argued that uh, if you know if the Trump administration has a primary steelmaking capability, then why doesn't South Africa? And I think it just shows the confluence of status thinking on both the left and the right of the political spectrum. And, uh, you know, it's something that I find to be particularly problematic and also devoid of an understanding of basic economics. Um, if you read through the 83 pages, which I had the pleasure of doing in June, um, you'd also see that there's a eulogy to ISCO, um and, you know, how it was supposedly successful. But I think there's often you know, a misunderstanding by virtue of the fact that they were operating in a closed market, we had sanctions, and therefore there was a requirement for local supply. I don't think that in a globalized and interdependent economy that still necessarily applies. There's also quite a large emphasis on clean energy. Now, as I'm sure the minister would accede to, a number of the AMSA plants in particular are, are quite outdated. Um, with the most updated one recently having been closed in the form of Saldana. And the only way that you're really able to, you know, combat emissions is through uh, direct air capture or carbon capture. And it's obviously quite an expensive process. And as far as I'm aware, there is no facility that has that. Understanding that for every one ton of steel that is produced, about 1.8 tons of carbon emissions come from that or carbon equivalents. So I think that if we're going to be relying on solar and on wind, particularly um, as a clean energy source, as well as the lack of, uh, you know, after market, shall we put it that way, um, ability to be able to, you know, reduce emissions, I find the greening of the steel industry particularly challenging, considering that we have such a high dependence on coal for energy and the fact that our energy supply is rather unstable. I think that a key opportunity arises, and it's something that I'd like to propose to the Minister, is in terms of self-generation uh, from steel manufacturers and, uh, you know, processes across the board. What have been their kind of commitments in terms of them making use of the recently amended regulation for them to uh, self-produce up to 100 megawatts? And what is, you know, the plan moving forward? Because I think that would be a unique opportunity to try and improve uh, electricity supply, which has been a challenge in the industry for a very, very long period of time. I think the other thing that is key to mention is despite all of the protections that have been afforded to AMSA, they've still shared jobs and they've now started turning a profit because of cost-cutting measures, but that doesn't necessarily relate into jobs or into an expansion of the industry and they still operate with the same old outdated mills. And it doesn't seem as if they have kept to the commitments 
that they made when they were fined at the time for failing to comply with the regulations that were put in place by the then Minister Rob Davies. I think it's quite ironic that the minister uses a you know temporary, and I think he used this in inverted commas in terms of the hot rolled quill tariffs, because it was only after Max Steele took the uh, ministry and the department to court that the moratorium was placed on those particular tariffs, and I think they're now standing at 8%, and they will be gradually phased out as we move on. Um, unfortunately, there is no industry that you can tariff into profitability, and I think that we need to learn from past mistakes in that regard, and it's something that I think we should be a little bit more honest about. Also, if we look at the infrastructure drive that is supposedly taking place, and I know that in our last engagement with the minister, we had a brief conversation about that. And I mean, the infrastructure drive or the supposed infrastructure drive and the expansion in fiscal policy on spending on these kinds of things has largely been muted by virtue of the fact that we've had a number of projects that have been subject to corruption, as well as other sorts of fiscal leakages where there's been over-invoicing and the like. I mean, even BLSA's Busi uh, Mavuso said that there's been a noted impact in how infrastructure spend has shrunk over the last five years, and this is most recently as mid-year, um, and that the fact that there's not necessarily much in the way of demand for public sector investment. So I find that particular argument in the master plan itself to be rather null and void. Um, I think that, you know, a key aspect of this particular plan is obviously localization, and I believe my views are well known on this. I mean, localization has proven to drive up cost. It's proven to reduce quality and diminish company competition over a period of time. I mean, if you look at it in this particular way, if you are only allowed to buy from certain suppliers, it's a constrained market. They can mark up the prices however they want, as we've seen with AMSA. And that just means that overall competitiveness quality and the like diminish over a period of time. I mean, the regulations in place in this particular industry, and I'm sure that the minister reads the financial mail in the business day, he would have noted that the MD of Deferco has been quite focal on this in saying that they've now had to import steel and they rather take it on the chin because it's more, uh, it's much easier to operate in that fashion. And they are able to now sort of circumvent the fact that Soldana in fact was closed and that, you know, this is something that the broader industry should be looking at. Um, whilst there's, you know, some sort of an ideological commitment to trying to keep the primary making steel industry, I think the most important thing is cost and input cost. And we've obviously got to focus on the downstream, which I think that among certain stakeholders, there's consensus on that front. And that's something that I think that we need to reconsider. Whether or not that happens under this particular administration, I'm not too sure. I also look at another issue regarding the PPS. And <laughs> no matter how anybody tries to sell it to us as a portfolio committee, the fact is that it is a, a literal copy and paste of North Korean juche. And I don't mean to sound like a McCarthyist here, but the fact is, is that you've closed off the market. You've tried to create an artificial market. And the fact is that there's no enforcement in terms of ensuring that rail infrastructure is not stolen, that copper cable is not stolen from a SAP's point of view, as well as, as well as other law enforcement agencies. And you can't use this kind of regulation to try and correct that particular problem. But in the meantime, you are crippling many scrap metal recyclers and the like. 
And you've even accused me, I think, of being a lobbyist for them. And I tell you, I'm no lobbyist. I'm just a believer in basic economics. And it seems to be something that seems to miss this department um, on a quite a regular basis. I think the other thing, you know, regarding particularly the, you know, scrap metal cartel, as, as you want to call it, and, and the, the people who have been behind the conception of the PPS, and you've seen, I'm sure, Talita Snake has write quite extensively of this, is the fact that the way in which trade policy and this forming a part of your trade policy is formed is through special interest groups and people who are brought on board to create, uh, and I use, you know, the president's terms, social partners and create, you know, the false impression that there is, you know, external input. But the fact is, is that there's specific interests that are going to be benefiting from this master plan, and it has not opened up the market to the extent that we would have hoped. And I think most importantly, there has to be real reform within the steel industry, and we can't simply rely on doing the exact same thing, because what I heard in the presentation today is pretty much a continuation of it. I mean, if you look at one other particular example of hexagonal screws, for example, I mean, the cost factor, I think, is increased by 50% by virtue of the preferential procurement regulations that are put in place. And this is something that's also been extensively written about in the business press. So there are, you know, my comments are, I think, you know, something that I would like the minister to consider. And obviously, I'm very interested in understanding how they are going to make the green transition considering the constraints that are in place. And I think that the proposed solutions that were provided on that front just aren't sufficient in order for us to be able to reduce emissions to the extent that the minister may envision or hope. So thank you very much for that, Chairperson. Thank you, Honourable Cuthbert. Uh, Honourable Burns, Lamashe. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Chair, uh, for um, the opportunity. And indeed, I must also uh, welcome uh, the very comprehensive and uh, detailed uh, input uh, by uh, the Minister on this important uh, aspect in terms of uh, advancing with uh, our industrial revolution. Uh, perhaps the first question, um, Honorable Chair, uh, would be um, just to check as to, uh, has the minister been able to uh, raise concerns uh, with the United States on uh, measures against South African steel. That's, that would be the first question. And, and this, the second question, um, uh, Chair, um, we, we are all aware that uh, the reliance on imports uh, is a challenge uh, to uh, the South African economy. In that uh, it uh, makes uh, our business and consumers um, vulnerable uh, to supply shocks uh, in other parts of the world, and 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 that has been amply demonstrated, uh, honourable chair, especially during the COVID uh, uh, nineteen uh, pandemic 
we are still suffering from that. Uh, the, the reliance that's on imports also means longer lead times uh, to get the necessary goals. And, and Chair, it, it results, you know, um, in South African businesses being uh, price takers uh, in international markets. You know, it, 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 it undermines our strategic uh, autonomy. And it means that uh, we create fewer jobs, you know, at home. Now, if we are to interrogate uh, this, uh, perhaps let's look at it in that uh, uh, localization. Uh, if we are to uh, move from uh, the perspective that says localization cannot be advanced without the revitalization uh, of our industrial parks, which are necessary for the sustainability uh, of our uh, domestic industries. Uh, the, the, the question then would be, what collaborative uh, efforts are in place with provincial and local municipalities uh, to protect and maintain the infrastructure in our industrial parks, uh, particularly in labor-intensive uh, industries like the one that we're talking about, which is uh, the steel. And I will be more interested uh, in, in areas where um, the raw material is derived, uh, where we normally get uh, the iron ore, and uh, which is largely uh, the Northern Cape and Limpopo. Uh, the extent to which uh, there's practical uh, value uh, within those areas, uh, so as to ensure that uh, jobs are created um, uh, and 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 there are practical uh, still related activities uh, in those uh, provinces and and you realize that these are rural provinces uh, it's not uh, uh, Gauteng, it's not western cape it's not uh, the southern part of uh, kzn like your etiquin and so on you know, it's is, is really uh, rural provinces where this raw, raw material uh, is derived. Uh, thank you very much, Chair. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Honorable Benz Namashi. Honorable Nguyani? Sorry, it was myself, uh, Ms. Herman. Oh, sorry. Sorry, You're it's because okay. I can't uh, with my hand. I don't yes. know. Maybe, I, maybe no, they've... That's fine. Uh, Over to you, Honorable McPherson. No, thanks. I think I've been following to give me the budget version of Zoom, which doesn't include a hand, but that's fine. Um, so I find the presentation to be um, interesting uh, because it's something that I have dealt with for many years, um, starting back in the previous uh, parliament. Um, 
And that's when the discussions of steel and, you know, you know, really started taking place and how government was going to protect primary steel producers. And the, the ideology really rests on the belief that South Africa, for whatever reason that may be, and it's clearly an ideological one, that it must have a primary steel sector and that must be protected at all costs. That was essentially the government's position then. It was Minister Rob Davies' position. It was largely driven by himself. Um, and that seems to have carried itself over into, into this administration and really does seem and come across as a at all costs uh, measure. And, and, and really, I mean, that's just, you know, harking back to sort of Soviet ideology, uh, command and control that the state must be uh, sort of uh, at all levers, including at the heart of uh, industrialization. And I mean, that's fine. That's the, that's the, the decision that the state has, uh, has made uh, and will continue to make. But also find the history of how we've got to this place to be somewhat revisionist. Um, and, and lacking in, uh, in its full picture. Because quite frankly, the, the steel industry finds itself in this position because the state has actively chosen to, to protect uh, primary producers uh, at, at the downstream industry's cost. Uh, that's the decision that they've made. That has resulted in skyrocketing prices. The state has continued to uh, enforce anti-competitiveness by protecting uh, a few uh, industry players at the cost of many uh, smaller industries um, and at the cost of creating jobs. And as I said, I mean, that's underpinned by its ideological focus on command and control. So, I mean, I think that that's the true context in, in, which, in which we need to, to view this. And it's how do you move forward from that point of view. Now, in my opinion, you know, the minister spoke about, you know, that we need to move away from the old paradigm of doing things. But in my view, this seems to be an entrenchment of the old paradigm. And in fact, there's nothing more than a closed shop agreement. Uh, at the behest of special interests. Um, uh, and I just really can't be uh, convinced otherwise because I can't see where the driver of competition is in this. And it's ironic that the Competition Commission has lots to say about everything at the moment, uh, particularly in, uh, you know, in business deals and citing public interest. But they seem to be very, very quiet um, on the on the entrenchment and deepening of anti-competitiveness, which is actually at the very heart uh, of, this, uh, of this master plan. The minister said that, you know, that there are people that want government to pick a side and they don't want to do that. But that's exactly what the government has done over the last certainly five years. They have picked a side, the primary producers, they have, uh, uh, and they have entrenched that position uh, and as the Honourable Cuthbert had pointed out, 
uh, that people had to go to court to get them to walk away from that position. It was a court order that that got them to stop their uh, what I believe to be anti-competitive behavior by protecting a few people uh, through uh, through through tariffs, which ironically we you know scream and shout about when other countries do it, but we do exactly the same beyond what was uh, agreed agreed timelines. So the deal uh, is based on the premise of driving uh, localization, of driving um, uptake of, of steel products. But the, the succinct question I have, Minister, is where does that demand come from? If one just looks at public sector infrastructure investment, we have gone back a decade in our, in our overall uh, investment. Uh, in terms of public uh, infrastructure. So uh, I'm interested to know where the demand comes from, from governments, because it's actually gone backwards uh, a decade in terms of, uh, in terms of monetary value of, of investment. Um, SOEs are a mess. I mean, PRASA is, is a disaster. ESCOM is bankrupt. So, so where does that demand for infrastructure and funding and capital come from for them to buy uh, South African uh, steel products. And then, of course, you know, we have the much spoken about or so-called investment strike in the private sector, where there is just an unwillingness to in, invest. And, you know, some may argue rightfully so, some may say it's understandable because of the incoherent government approach to investment, to infrastructure spend, uh, and to economic policy. And so there is no or very little domestic demand uh, or uptake over the next couple of years. And the anemic growth, flat growth of one, one and a half percent at best, certainly over the medium term, continues. So I'm interested to know where the domestic demand uh, comes, uh, comes from. I'm, I'm, I, it's always perplexed me as to as to how the government has rationalised the, um, the 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 skyrocketing, skyrocketing prices of steel products, which South African consumers and South African businesses must subject themselves to, and 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 I'm not I'm not sure where the the commitment from local producers are to, to limit that because under the previous agreements relating to, um, relating to tariffs, there was an agreement that they, were, that they would not increase prices. And that's exactly what they did. I mean, from the onset, it was a complete joke. They gave government the middle finger and, and they did nothing about it. I mean, it was so ridiculous that AMSA even issued a note to blame me for uh, the uh, reduction or the uh, they saw one day a massive decrease in their stock price and then blamed me. I mean, it was ridiculous because no one in that industry actually wants to realize and wants to admit that it's their chronic lack of infrastructure investment in their own businesses that have led to their inefficiencies. And then they rely on government to try and rectify that, whether it's through tariff protection, whether it's through uh, um, uh, funding, which I see is also on the table. They need more funding 
to uh, to do so. What is the what is the the calculated play between the heavy focus on the upstream sector, which has limited jobs potential, versus the downstream sector, which has the real jobs potential. How has government uh, looked at that and said, well, you know, we're, as they say, not picking one over the other, even though we know that's not true. Why do they calculate the upside or the upstream to be more important uh, than the downstream? And then finally, I want to make this point because I think it must be made. For 12 years, Minister, you have been at the heart of the economic cluster um, in government, dating back to 2009, first under economic development and now under trade and industry. You've had vast power and leverage over economic policy um, in this country. And yet, certainly for over a decade, the economy has worsened. Unemployment is now at a record high. We have a declining uh, investment uh, environment in our country. And there are just very little prospects of growth. Clearly, there is a common thread that runs through all of that. And that has been your belief and your in your, in your ideological stance in how you view the economy, how you view uh, economic uh, policy, how you view industrial policy. And don't you think it's time after 12 years of trying the same thing over and over and over again, which, is re- which has resulted in worsening unemployment, which has resulted in worsening investment, you know, uh, uh, worsening regulation, don't you think it's time that we step back from this ideological, closed shop, anti-competitiveness, state control uh, way of doing things and actually start reviewing the way that we actually do business as this country? Because if, if we still do this for the next 12 years, I can assure you we're going to get the same results. Something has to change. And whether that's individuals, or whether that's government policy, it has to happen now. But this agreement and this plan is rooted in the 12 years of failure that we've seen. And and I'm not convinced that it's going to make uh, much of a difference. Thanks so much. Thank you, Honourable McPherson. Honourable Mbiani. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, let me first welcome the presentation by all stakeholders in the steel industry. It shows that uh, together we, we can do more, Chaperson. If you have collaboration of government and also the, the industry itself uh, and also the unions, it tells that uh, uh, we, we're going somewhere in terms of the of the master plan chair. I just uh, have some few clarity seeking question here. One which, how is the department uh, doing to ensure that the SEZ and the industrial parks, uh, for instance, the Mosina and the Makado SEZ and Gomazi and SEZ, 
are fast-tracked in order to benefit the steel industry uh, when it's, it's been constructed. Uh, on the other issue, Chair, the, uh, the industrial financing, uh, what is the limit for funding and support in the, uh, in the sector? It's grant, it's loan, or it's combination of the both? Chair, the, I'll, 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 I'll come back to the Heifel Steel because I'm, 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 I'm from Pumala, Chairperson. Uh, um, uh, I just have some few clarity-seeking questions around the transformation because in the master plan, if we, we, we don't have the transformation, then how do we able to gauge the process of localization and also the beneficiary uh, participation of, of in the industry by the, the, the small-scale uh, players, Jefferson? Because for me, if transformation is not taken care of, the localization and the beneficiation of the few participation in the industry is not going to be looked after. The other one, Chairperson, I just want to check, uh, is there any scientific evidence experienced globally that localization reduces competitiveness and the quality of product? Scientific change because now we we hear green standards there they are talking of localization not be able to produce and also have those things. Uh, the steel industry is very vital in South Africa, more especially in the in the future of the end of the country. And to me, the reckless the statement and grandstanding by our members here in playing with the jobs of South Africa is very much shocking, Chairperson. As a department, we support, uh, as a committee, we support the department and we support the approach of the government on the steel. Myself, Chair, I come from Bumalanga, and uh, without the effort that uh, our colleagues from DA are trying to do, Heifel steel today is producing. And uh, it cannot be, be correct, Chaperson, that uh, the, the steel is dead, the Heifel steel is dead, because it's not for the first time these uh, utterances were made by our colleagues. On that note, Chaperson, I just want to check uh, what is the approach of government to promote expansion of steel making in South Africa and also beneficiation. So that while in the process we we establishing that the uh, uh, companies still companies in making, we must be able to also to skill uh, our small players, small scales in the process, so that we 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 we, we development uh, the country percent because without transformation, uh, I don't think we will be here today. Uh, that was the question, Chair. Just the last one on the steel high effect. What is the critical uh, intervention and the role did government uh, play in salvaging the company? And what is the company impression working with government? Because all of them are here now. It's proper that you hear from government and also from 
uh, the industry to say what are the processes in terms of immigration uh, of the work moving forward. Chairperson, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you very much, Honorable Mbriani. I don't see any further hands. So can I hand back to the minister to delegate to his team um, as he sees fit uh, in response? I see there's a hand now from Honorable Motaung before yeah. you, Minister. Honorable Motaung. Thanks, Chair, for the opportunity. I have only two questions to raise. Uh, Minister, I just want to check uh, what measures are in place to curb the dumping of cheap Chinese steel in South Africa to the detriment of our domestic steel industry. Secondly, what public-private partnership are in place to invest in infrastructure to resuscitate the industry? Thanks, Chair. I have only two questions. Thank you very much, Honorable Mutaung. Uh, over to you, Minister. Well, thank you very much, uh, uh, Chairperson, for the, uh, the opportunity to uh, respond. and. Uh, uh, for those areas where there were questions, I um, will uh, ask a few of the uh, business representatives to also make comments, where it is uh, purely the expression of opinions by the two uh, DAMPs. I will deal with their opinions uh, in due course. One of the issues that's come up from uh, a few of the um, uh, questions by the uh, DA members of parliament is relates to localization uh, and uh, the impact that has on the economy. So I'm going to ask if I can um, uh, invite uh, through the chair, uh, Mr. Doron Barnes, who is a steelmaker, uh, to respond to the practical experience that he has had and the industry has had and how the master plan is seeking to address this issue. Over to you, Mr. Barnes. Thank you. Uh, good morning, uh, Chair and uh, Minister, and thank you for the opportunity. And good morning to the committee. Uh, I represent uh, School Metals and the Barnes Group. We, uh, as the group, in total, we employ 5,000 people in South Africa, paying the wages and salaries of approximately 150 million rand a month. Being in the steel industry, uh, started as a fencing, a small fencing business, which we started ourselves uh, in 1994, and have developed the business uh, from that, a small business employing maybe 50 to 100 people with my father. And today we're employing 5,000 people all the way through the supply chain in the, fen in the steel business. Uh, we currently have a mine where we're mining iron ore. We buy scrap. Uh, into score metals, and uh, coincidentally, we supply AMSA with iron ore as well. Um, and uh, a, a fully uh, a, a business in the full supply chain, all the way from iron ore and scrap, all the way into supplying a nail into a hardware store in Build It or Cash Build in uh, 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 Lusiki Siki 
or in vendor all the way through the supply chain. And we've been supplying these products starting from the downstream businesses and managed to integrate fully upstream. And uh, 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 between uh, uh, the Honorable Mr. Cuthbert and the Honorable Mr. McPherson have had a lot to say. And, and, I, and obviously the, the input that you've been given is around the information that you have around the industry. And I think uh, I would love the opportunity to meet with you guys and, uh, and go through with what is going on actually on the ground. As South Africa and as a proud South African, I think it's an obligation on all of us people that have the capabilities to create jobs in South Africa. And to create jobs in South Africa in an, in an environment where we have significant unemployment. And in this industry where we have iron ore in the ground, we have scrap in South Africa. And to say, to stand up in front of a committee here and say that we are incapable to make steel in South Africa because we are just incapable to do it is shameful. We are capable. Give people the opportunity to, in, to industrialize ourselves and we can produce the products that we need for our own people. There is absolutely no reason why South Africa should be importing jobs. And when I say importing jobs, importing making basic products like a wheelbarrow, making a basic product you put on the group here, a, a, a nut, a screw, we can make the steel, we can make the product in South Africa, we should be able to make the product. Now we ask the question, why can we not make the product? Up until recently, up until April this year, China gave a 13% export rebate to every steel producer in China when they exported steel to the world. They gave 13% export rebate to every... To, I can't talk about uh, nuts and bolts, but I can talk about wire and tubing because that's our product that we manufacture. They have a 13% export rebate on wire and tubing. Now, there's no 13 an export rebate for everyone. What that means is they paid the company who exported steel out of China 13% on the value of that export. I understand from Columbus they paid 13% on the export of stainless steel out of China. Saying so effectively, China, and this has been going on for a number of years, 10, 15, uh, Mr. McPherson mentioned 12 years that this has been going on, that the South African government or South African uh, 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 trade um, has done nothing to change in the last 12 years. Well, China has been giving a 13% export rebate in sending steel into South Africa and actually crippled the South African steel industry, as well as many other steel industries in the world. Now, on the whims of China, they decided to stop giving an export rebate. And as a result of that export rebate that's been pulled away, we have skyrocketing prices that, that um, uh, Mr. McPherson complained about. We have skyrocketing prices in the world of steel because China decided to get rid of an export rebate. And China is now considering to put an export tax onto steel. And had our South African, uh, had Minister Patel not got involved to assist Mattel uh, through various duties and, 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 other, and other trade, uh, trade uh, mechanisms that the minister has, we would have lost AMSA. And I, and I as SCORE and Barnes Group, we compete significantly with AMSA. 
And we have taken AMSA to Competition Commission on Pricing in the past and had a lot of issues with AMSA. So I'm no friend of AMSA. But as South Africa, we need to protect our industrialization capacity and what we do. These steel plants are not things that you put up and take down in, in a few minutes. These things take many years to develop. Uh, um, in order to create a sustainable steel industry in South Africa, what we need is to create a competitive steel industry in South Africa. We, we spoke about, um, uh, uh, Mr. McPherson spoke about worsening unemployment. We, we are an anti-competitive uh, and we are state controlled. That is absolutely, absolutely nonsense. Absolutely nonsense. We are creating employment in the business. Uh, the long product, so the flat uh, uh, carbon steel is divided up into two areas. Uh, one is long products, which is a wire rod, what you use to make screws, what you use to make fencing and wire. Another is flat products that one is used to make tubing, for example. It comes in a sheet of coil, big coil. Uh, um, and these are two products. You need two different mills to make these. The long product market in South Africa is very competitive. Today, today, um, Mr. McPherson and uh, Honorable uh, Mr. Cuthbert, today the South African long steel market, and, and I, I welcome you to come visit us at Score Metals to come and see, and we will show you. South African long steel market is one of the most competitive product uh, long steel markets in the world. At times, at the beginning of this month, at the beginning of November, we were selling long wire rod. Wire rod, we were selling it cheaper than you could buy it in China. Not import parity pricing, which is what the big complaint about has been about steel. Not import parity prices. We are selling on cost-based pricing. Means taking costs and adding up the costs, and that gives you your price of your steel with a bit of a profit that we hope to make. Because we're industrialists, we need to also make a bit of a profit when we produce our steel. And that price that we were selling, long products, is cheaper than the price the Chinese guy in China can go and buy long products. That is the most amazing thing. That hasn't been this case since I have been in business since 1994. This has never been. That's the most incredible thing. Flat products. Flat product is not competitive because there's only one main manufacturer. Uh, Columbus has started making some carbon steel in flat products. And as mentioned earlier, school metals will hope to be making some carbon steel in flat products. Not hope. We will be making carbon steel, a limited range of carbon steel in flat products with a 2 billion rand investment in the South African steel industry. The latest investment, the latest substantial investment into the steel industry in South Africa. This is an unbelievable change, an unbelievable change that's happened. Not only and funded by commercial banks, by shareholders, uh, 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 and the IDC, portion by the IDC. This is going to create competition in the local market. And by creating competition in the local market, you create a sustainable upstream and downstream industry. And that's what one needs in South Africa. This steel master plan that's been put in place is the first time in my 25 years in the steel industry that we're sitting down with government and having constructive discussions whereby we are actually achieving results. It's the most amazing thing. It is the most amazing thing. We have, we have SARS getting involved in, in, in preventing illicit imports. Uh, 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 we, have, we have some funding coming into downstream and upstream 
part of the business. This is a fantastic, a fantastic initiative by government uh, that certainly assisted both up and downstream. You, and this is certainly not a, 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 a master plan that is assisting only upstream at all. There's been a number of assistance in the downstream industry. But please remember, everybody, that in order to have a sustainable downstream industry, you need to have primary steel available in South Africa. And there's been a lot of talk about people not being able to import because of the import duties. It's not the case. People haven't been able to import of late because of the lack of supply out of China and because of the logistical issues that have taken place because of COVID, because we rely on the whims of international suppliers into South Africa. And when there's a problem, South Africa doesn't get steel. What we need to develop and what we are doing through this master plan is developing an upstream and downstream steel industry that will be competitive and sustainable going forward that will create real good jobs in the industry that will sustain the South African downstream and the requirements for steel in South Africa. And I must tell you, I'd like to thank the minister and the DTI for all that they've done to assist the industry. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Barnes. Over to you, Minister. Well, thank you very much, uh, Chair. Um, the issue of scrap metal and the price preference system has also been raised by, um, I think it was uh, Honorable McPherson uh, who raised it. Um, and, uh, uh, or it may have been, no, it was uh, Honorable Cuthbert who raised it. And um, is, um, uh, I think uh, a question could uh, perhaps be best answered by Harry Kessel who is in, a, in an unusual position because the reclamation group is in the scrap recycling business. So they, in fact, are in both parts of the market, both in the export market and in the domestic market. So, uh, Mr. Castle, perhaps if I could, through the chair, give you the floor. Mr. Castle. Thank you, Honourable Chair and honor Honourable Minister. Um, I represent, as CEO of the Reclamation Group, whom the Honourable Minister, just now, it was a point I was going to talk to, I represent a what, what I would consider one of the larger players in the scrap metal recycling industry in South Africa. We employ upwards of 2,500 people. Um, and sitting here today, um, I can't really grasp or understand the enormous pushback uh, that has been apparent um, against the PPS. And I say, I say this um, based on certain facts that exist in our industry rather than um, noise from a select few within our industry whom this policy may not 100% suit, but whom also have opportunities to go along with the policy and have extremely um, viable uh, businesses that can retain uh, each of their respective uh, employments and generate fresh and new employment. So, 
The question I'd like to pose is, firstly, which scrap recyclers are not doing well and which ones have closed? Uh, we are in the industry and uh, we haven't heard of um, any uh, closures or any businesses in our industry um, who are in peril. Um, the PPS is a policy that has saved the steel manufacturing industry and has created a situation where recycle recyclers are now indeed forced to further invest in infrastructure and beneficiation um, rather than the wholesale max, mass export of scrap metal and jobs to other continents for profit and not uh, for the reinvestment into their businesses. Now, what is very, very pertinent to note is that the reason for the cheapest long products in the world, as mentioned by um, Daron Bonds of Score Metals, is by a large part a result of the PPS intervention. And certain um, perceptions exist where downstream, it's, it's at downstream industries uh, cost. Now, if we are producing the cheapest long products in the world, it is impossible that downstream industries are bearing the brunt. In fact, they are reaping the fruits and benefits of what the PPS ultimately has created in long products. And I draw everybody's attention to, sorry, I draw everybody's attention to uh, Daron Barnes's comments where there are two separate sectors uh, in the steel uh, uh, market. One are the primary steel producers who produce uh, steel from iron ore and scrap, but scrap being a far um, smaller input into their processes. These are mainly the flat um, steel producers and their cost drivers on raw material are very different to those of the cost drivers of the long products manufacturers who are mainly minimals. And a minimal uh, produces steel from scrap metal predominantly and to a certain degree, direct reduction iron or otherwise referred to as DRI. Now, it's interesting to note that those who are producing long products are producing the cheapest long products in the world. Um, and those who are producing from primary are unable to um, deliver their products at competitive prices into downstream industry. So a, 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 a key differentiator between the two are one is a, a basis a scrap metal as raw material. Those are the long products producers. Those are the benefits that are being had by South African industry um, via the cheapest long products in the world. Um, and that I can, I would like to draw a huge part of that benefit is as a result of the excellent policy that the Honourable Minister has implemented uh, called the PPS. Um, in addition to, to this, you know, a, a few um, comments have been made around um, our policies over the last 12 years um, and the failure thereof where in fact the numbers in both the recycling sector and the steel sector at this stage cannot be, uh, the numbers don't lie, that, that's a, it's, it's a phrase that, that's often used. And if one looks at the profitability of certain public listed entities who, who are players in the recycling space and significant players, 
uh, in the recycling space. They have had bumper profits and they are looking unbelievably good. The steel industry, uh, downstream manufacturing industry, I suppose, outside of AMSA at this stage, that are um, utilizing scrap as their raw material base, they are absolutely pumping. And this is all as a result of these policies now maturing and coming together in the steel master plan in South Africa. Now, I'd like to draw to everybody's attention that the EU has just put in a regulation um, and are moving in the same direction, um, albeit 10 years later than what we embarked on, on, on this journey uh, uh, versus I'm saying the EU's policy making is behind ours because it's all under the guise of not dumping their waste on developing countries. This is all actually in, in, in my, in my view um, to flout WTO rules where their, our policy, our PPS policy is an open and transparent policy where public comment is always considered in each step of policymaking. Where this policy works under the guise of you can't dump your waste. Now, everybody knows that scrap is a precious raw material. And all that's really happening in the EU is they are securing their green resource being scrapped because of the green steel economy um, becoming a huge um, uh, point. Uh, of contention around steel, steel making countries and that steel needs to be greened in order to, to uh, reduce carbon emissions and protect the planet. Um, and the fact is that without these interventions, the steel industry as well as the recycling industry as a whole would have shut down completely and a jobs massacre will have ensued. We would rely on imports 100% and scrap generation as a result of downstream manufacturing in South Africa would completely uh, diminish to zero. And, you know, if one takes a 30-year view as opposed to a hit and, hit and run with your profits made from the demise of our steel industry as a whole, uh, if one takes the 30-year I'm a South African for South Africa Inc., one at this stage to start needs to give our industry a breather and the benefits so that they can have enough uh, resources and funds to uh, reinvest, invest in better technology, invest in green technology. But without the, the interventions that, 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 that this government has come with, I can tell you now long term, the recycling industry, the recycling industry is dead. The steel industry is dead and the downstream steel uh, manufacturing industry is also dead. And the reality is, is that since the master plan's inception, if you look at profitability across the entire value chain, including recyclers, everybody is benefiting from the policy and not a select few. And the competition in the industry is ruthless. It is cutthroat at all levels of the value chain. And there is no anti-competitive behavior that takes place in this value chain. Uh, I'd like to close with that, Honorable Chair and Honorable Minister. Thank you very much, Mr. Castle. Um, Minister? Thank you. Thank you, Chairperson. Chairperson, just to respond to a few of the issues. I mean, I think first, Mr. Cuthbert, uh, Honorable Cuthbert and Honorable McPherson's uh, comments overlap greatly. Uh, and uh, in my view, uh, much of it is opinion, uh, not many questions. 
But perhaps let me just uh, deal with some of these uh, opinions that have been expressed. The first is, uh, Honorable Cuthbert says, uh, South Africa seems to have, our government seems to have an ideological to com uh, commitment to retain primary steelmaking. Uh, and uh, Honorable McPherson says, it's an ideological view that South Africa must have a steel uh, industry. Uh, then they go a bit further, Honorable Cuthbert, in his enthusiasm, begins to uh, regard it as North Korean. Uh, uh, Honorable McPherson, to be a little bit different, called it Soviet, Soviet ideology. Now, name-calling aside, which happens when you lose the argument, as Honorable McPherson and Honorable uh, Cuthbert has clearly lost the argument, let me deal with a more fundamental issue that they raise. And that fundamental issue is, is it ideology that drives the belief that um, uh, a country, uh, in order to develop, needs to have a, a diverse uh, economy, a manufacturing sector, and that within that manufacturing sector, uh, on the African continent, there needs to be a primary steelmaking capability. Well, if it was ideological, then I guess the European Union is ideological, China is ideological, the United States under a number of different presidents from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party is ideological. The UK, interestingly, in some of the recent statements that have been made is ideological. Brazil is ideological. India is ideological. Uh, Russia is ideological. We can take the list into a very, very long list of countries. Because what holds these countries what they have in common is their political systems differ vastly. Their political complexions of whichever is the ruling party differs greatly. But they all believe that there is merit in having a primary steelmaking industry. And they're all sitting around the table together with Indonesia that you can then say would also be ideological. You'd have to say South Korea is ideological. You'll have to say... Uh, this for just about every industrialized uh, economy in the world, because they're all sitting around the table with me present at those discussions saying, how can we address the global steel crisis? How can we address the overproduction globally? And how can they, each of them separately, ensure that there is a primary steelmaking capacity in their country? Uh, none of them seem to be won over by the simplistic economics uh, that uh, Honorable Cuthbert and Honorable McPherson is dabbling in. Uh, none of them have said, you know what, why don't we just accept we can get cheap primary steel uh, from whoever is the lowest cost producer, and we don't really need a primary steel industry. We're only going to focus on downstream industry. I listened hard. I couldn't get those comments from any of those industry ministers. Now, it is possible that Honorable McPherson and Honorable Cuthbert is right and the world is wrong. I don't think that's the case. I think it's more likely that the world is right and the two honorable uh, members of parliament from the Democratic Alliance will need to supplement their reading, their study of the steel industry, uh, speak a little bit more to steel producers, get a more rounded view of the problem, 
avoid being lobbied by only one view and come up with a more mature, balanced view of how we, in fact, have a steel industry that is both upstream and downstream. Now, then Honorable Cuthbert goes a bit further. He says, well, you know, the problem is you are backing uh, special interest groups. And then uh, Honorable McPherson goes a bit further and he says, uh, your history is revisionist. You are protecting upstream industry at the expense of downstream industry. Well, interestingly, when you look at the presentation today, you will see that the trade measures we've taken in the last uh, uh, eight months or so, I guess, would all have related to downstream industry. I would have expected to see Honorable Cuthbert and Honorable McPherson sending boxes of locally made chocolates to me uh, saying, well done, you are protecting downstream industry. But unfortunately, the two honorable members find facts to be a little bit inconvenient. When it's an easy drum to hit, then they will say uh, you are protecting upstream industry when you should be supporting downstream industry. When we support downstream industry, they will find fault with the downstream support that we render to the production of wheelbarrows or uh, any of the other products, uh, um, uh, uh, screws and so on. Uh, that uh, support has been given to. So my advice to the honorable members would be to um, find consistency in their argument and uh, look at the facts. You know, ideological approaches uh, is one where irrespective of the facts before one, uh, you just maintain a position. We speak to industry. We listen where we need to adjust course, we do so. We recognize in the early stages, uh, and uh, uh, Mr. Castle made the very good point, uh, that a steel mill is not something that you can just uh, put up one moment and take down the next moment. These are very considerable investments. When a country de-industrializes, when it loses that uh, combination of capital, entrepreneurship, technical skills, workforce, technologies, all of those things. It doesn't just come through administrative fiat when you decide you're ready for it again. Uh, so countries across the world do try to retain that capacity which they have. So in the first phase, we focus on upstream uh, industry. And in the second phase, a lot more of the work is now focused on downstream industry. Then Honorable Cuthbert says, but hang on, uh, Max Steel took you to court and um, that's why you didn't extend the um, safeguard duty on certain uh, steel products. And Honorable McPherson uh, repeats that. I should compliment uh, their researchers for making sure that the talking points of the two uh, DA members of parliament are well aligned to each other. Um, now, the truth is, unfortunately, a little bit different to what the two honorable members have been advised. When ITAC initially during COVID uh, put forward a proposal to me that there should be an extension of the uh, period for the safeguard duties, I uh, made sure that uh, any provisional extension uh, is accompanied by a more detailed report by ITAC 
and that that additional report setting out detailed information would be available to me on which I can apply my mind. Having applied my mind to it, having heard downstream industry on some of the challenges of accessing steel, uh, having had reference to the problems at some of the mills uh, that is operated by uh, AMSA, including in Newcastle, uh, I took the view, having regard to all the facts before me, that it was not warranted in those circumstances to extend the safeguard duty. It was therefore very easy for me when Max Steel brought the application to inform Max Steel that I'm in uh, uh, of the view that the safeguard duty would not be extended. And uh, it wasn't a court uh, finding against us. We then said we would be happy uh, uh, to have their case settled uh, by having uh, this recorded uh, in the court proceedings, which is what happened. So that's really uh, what that story is about, uh, honorable members. I then move on to uh, a point honorable um, uh, Cuthbert makes around the infrastructure drive. And he says that public spending on infrastructure shrunk over the last five years. And Honorable McPherson then falls on that and says, where will domestic demand come from? So first, uh, Honorable Cuthbert, you are right. And I pointed this out uh, in my remarks at the start of this presentation, that infrastructure uh, spending by the state has come down significantly since about 2014 or so. And I'm really happy, Honorable Cuthbert, that you found something that you could agree with me uh, on. Uh, we should celebrate that. Now, when the, um, the infrastructure spending uh, figures came down, they were the result of a number of, of, of uh, reasons. One of the, the things, by the way, even in the period of significant infrastructure spending, uh, we released in 2017 a report uh, to show this is now in the forerunner to the uh, DTIC, uh, EDD uh, released a report showing what we call leakages that reduces the impact of infrastructure spending. And there were a number of leakages. The first leakage was corruption. Corruption that meant for every billion rand that we make available through the budget that should be stimulating the economy, a portion of that is skimmed off by, um, by middlemen uh, and by uh, uh, persons like uh, the Gupta family and others. And we put some figures to that. And uh, this was widely publicized in the media at the time. We pointed out what we believed would be on an assumption of a 10% overpayment uh, on contract, what the impact would be on the economy, on jobs, and on GDP. We pointed out a second leakage, which was the high propensity to import, that uh, a significant part of the infrastructure spending was mopped up by imports and uh, Honorable uh, Cuthbert, uh, who says he's a believer in basic economics, will know the formula for GDP. And you will know in the formula for GDP, you subtract imports. Uh, and so that acted as a break on our growth. It is now under the new administration of President Ramaphosa that we're dealing with that, that he has put out in uh, 2019 in the State of the Nation Address for the first time, a reimagined industrial strategy that puts 
industrialization at the heart of South Africa's efforts. Uh, we pointed out other leakages uh, that uh, absorbs a number of the benefits of um, the uh, infrastructure spending. So I'm in discussion with Minister Godungwana, the um, Minister's Committee on the Budget are all of similar view that infrastructure spending must be increased. But there are also other sources of domestic demand that we're looking at in addition to infrastructure spending, even though that would be a very significant part of it. And uh, Honorable McPherson, I would point you to the relevant parts of the steel master plan, which you said you read in June, perhaps it's time for a refresher pause, because that would point out to you where we see opportunities in the domestic market. They are from value chain development. We're talking to the auto industry as the auto industry steps up its own uh, uh, contribution to uh, local components. We, we want them to consider the appropriateness of using more South African-made steel and products made with South African steel. We identified the mining equipment area, the yellow metals area, uh, the greening of the economy, will, which will bring new technologies and issues to it. But it's also very importantly, uh, in addition to domestic demand, what we can do by way of demand externally. And one of the external areas that we've looked at is the African continental free trade area. We now have rules of origin covering the steel industry, and this uh, could potentially be a significant driver of additional demand. Think about it. The African continent uh, produces less than 1% of global steel. Let me just repeat that statistic again. And let me contextualize it. 17% of the world's people are Africans. Less than 1% of the steel produced in the world is produced in the African continent. Uh, it's produced, the rest of the steel is produced in Europe, in the Americas, in Asia. Honorable Cuthbert, Honorable McPherson, we want to change that. We're having the support of African leaders across the continent. When we spoke to uh, President uh, Buhari, when we spoke to uh, President um, uh, uh, of Ghana, uh, uh, President Nana, uh, when we spoke to uh, President of Cote d'Ivoire, of Kenya, all of them had the same message. It will be a message that will be uncomfortable to your ears because it's a message of industrialization of the African continent and of building Africa's industrial capabilities to break the neo-colonial patterns where Africa is a producer only of raw materials. I heard that passionate uh, appeal from that um, uh, uh, proud South African, Doron Barnes, who said, why should we not be able to produce these things? Let's lose our inferiority complex uh, and the belief that we can only import steel from China or from Europe, uh, Honorable McPherson. Be a proud South African. We can produce steel. We need to make sure that it's produced in more competitive uh, uh, forms, more competitive prices. And some of the information uh, Mr. Barnes has indicated uh, is, is, is helpful. We, of course, want to see that to be the picture uh, across a wider range of steel production and many more firms uh, able to do that. Um, Honorable Cuthbert raises the issue of self-generation. 
And I think it is an important area because energy and steelmaking are quite fundamentally intertwined. And uh, the challenges of ESCOM has impacted very greatly on South Africa's steelmaking uh, capability and prices. And it is an area that we should deal with. And the president has, uh, of course, announced very importantly the uh, additional self-generation uh, uh, rules uh, uh, governing 100 megawatts uh, per, per generating firm. On the AMSA ArcelorMittal matter, uh, I can see that um, Honorable um, Cuthbert, uh, I'm really happy that you're taking the side of the ruling party, the ANC, in saying that profit should not be based on uh, job shedding. I hope, Honorable Cuthbert, you remember this when we deal with other instances where it's not just politically convenient to make this point. We've raised with business. We understand the pressures that businesses have and the, the fact that they could go completely out of business if they don't uh, find the competitive um, uh, ways of operating and if they don't have a, a labor force aligned to their production output. But it's always a sad day when a job is lost because it's ordinary South Africans who suffer. And so when I see entrepreneurs in the steel industry battling, trying their best to create jobs, I want to celebrate them. I don't want to kick them. I want to celebrate them. And um, we don't uh, support AMSA's efforts uh, that they have had. I've been very critical uh, to AMSA uh, and in uh, uh, public about the impact of their actions on employment. And I, was, uh, I took this view not when it was politically convenient, but even uh, uh, on a consistent basis. I take the, the example of Saldana Steel. The DA in the Western Cape has been a lot more pragmatic than the representatives in uh, uh, the National Assembly. They reached out to me when Saldana Steel closed and said, is there nothing we can do to try to keep it open? Saldana Steel happens to be owned by ArcelorMittal. And uh, so uh, uh, the DA and ArcelorMittal should continue their dance together. But as far as government is concerned, we do what is right for the South African public. Uh, Honorable McPherson then uh, goes on to say that uh, the Competition Commission is very quiet about the steel industry. On the contrary, Honorable McPherson, the single biggest fine that has been levied in um, uh, South African history up to that point was in the steel industry, a massive fine that the Competition Commission uh, slapped on ArcelorMittal. Um, so I think I, I've taken the view of uh, uh, responding to the opinions that have been expressed with uh, opinions uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, I, I, I have put up. I've also, I hope, uh, shown more clearly that there are business people who run factories, who actually know what their business is about, who have a very different worldview to that of uh, Honorable McPherson and Honorable Cuthbert. Uh, it seems to me that um, we need to move the portfolio committee discussions into a more uh, constructive tone, but we will need the support of the Honorable Members to do that. 
to point to some of the uh, more interesting questions that have come up, Honorable Burns Namashi uh, raises a few questions. He says, number one, uh, what has been South Africa's interaction with the United States uh, regarding South African steel uh, exports to the U.S.? And so let me let me respond to that question, Honorable Burns Namashi. I can see that you are interested in facts. You like um, detail, uh, and uh, you're staying away from uh, the expression of um, uh, of simply of opinion. So the United States has a provision in their uh, Trade Expansion Act. It's called Section Two Three Two. Section Two Three Two is a provision that allows them to impose tariffs on any product where they believe that their national interest is affected. And so they imposed this uh, uh, some years ago during the Trump administration against steel from many, many different countries. The uh, Biden administration retained this provision, retained this provision. Uh, we then reached out to my counterpart in the American cabinet, uh, uh, Ambassador Catherine Tai, and we put forward uh, cogently the empirical arguments why South Africa uh, should not be affected by that. We looked at the volume of trade between the United States and South Africa. We broke down this into steel. We looked at the aluminium sector. Uh, we looked at the capacity of the U.S. steel industry, and we made the point that purely factually, South Africa was not disrupting U.S. domestic steel uh, capability and wasn't the cause of any shutdowns of, of U.S. steel mills. We also took note that the uh, Biden administration has um, uh, reached an agreement uh, with the European Union. It's a quota agreement. So in other words, Again, our honorable members from the DA would squirm and be uncomfortable. Uh, but then again, they haven't run a national government. Um, and in, in that deal, the US and the EU now are, are moving uh, to a settlement of the steel dispute. We're now engaging with the United States at a technical level uh, to, to identify whether there are grounds for an agreement between the United States and uh, South Africa. Then Honorable Burns Namashi asks, uh, or makes the point, have we taken into account the impact of imports and a, a, a reliance on global supply on lead times for South African industry? And Honorable Namashi, we haven't had a chance in this presentation to go into the detail, but one of the real lessons of COVID-19 that is being taken up across the world, and I raised it at the last time that I, uh, I spoke in one of the committee meetings, is everywhere supply chains have been disrupted, not only for steel, but also for a range of other products. Uh, one of the more notable ones has been um, the chips used in cars, uh, semiconductor chips. And this has caused havoc to industrial output across the world. And there's now a greater understanding that countries need to have resilience based into their strategy, that competitive pricing is an important consideration, but resilience of supply is also vitally important. And so we will see in uh, the period ahead, a lot more focus on this from many different players. When you source 
from a very diverse and um, far-flung location, you can get some advantages. One advantage is price, because China is able to do such enormous production runs, and the European Union too, because their internal markets are so large. Uh, they're able to beat anybody on price on uh, in general, although as um, score has shown, this don't always need to be the case. We're trying to address that in two ways. The one is through the uh, creation of an Africa free trade area that will give us significant um, uh, scale. But the other part is also to recognize that with this uh, advantage comes enormous disadvantages. And one disadvantage is we can't get your steel in because your um, supply chains are disrupted or your lead times are so long that by the time you place an order and the uh, raw steel is landed, the market has changed. And so these are uh, what uh, are basic economic arguments in favor of what we're seeking to do. Honorable Burns, Amashi then goes further and talks about industrial parks and the need to, uh, in, to, to identify a role for them. I, I have full support for that thought, uh, Honorable Amashi, and it's something that's picked up by Honorable Mbuyani on special economic zones. However, one of the challenges we do face is we can't always locate industrial parks in every instance close to the raw material supplies. There are times when it makes eminent economic sense to do so, but a steel mill very, very often requires a range of other inputs in addition to the iron ore or the scrap metal. And the energy systems available in a given area, the technical skills, the managerial talent, uh, the port and logistics facilities, because steel is an integrated product. All of these things are factors that uh, we need to take into account. But your general point that one needs to see where does it make economic sense to locate the industrial parks closer to the source uh, is something that I think deserves further consideration and thought. Our industrial park model is faulty in one very important respect. National government has virtually no role in it. Our role is limited to uh, being the uh, funding agency. Uh, National Treasury puts money with the DTIC. The DTIC then receives re uh, requests from provinces for capital upgrades and makes that money available. But the actual running of the industrial parks are left to provinces. In a number of cases, it has been run extremely poorly. And uh, we've seen uh, a, uh, an instance of public resources not getting uh, the development return we need. So we need to fix that. And it will require uh, quite a tough negotiation with provinces and a change to the uh, framework, the legal and fiscal framework in relation to industrial parks that would give national government more say and more ability to ensure that these parks are run professionally. There are industrial parks in the Eastern Cape, uh, uh, in um, uh, many other parts of the country that can and should be turned around. Honorable um, uh, Mbuyani raises the, the point around industrial funding. The IDC funding is... Uh, essentially loan funding, uh, Honorable Mbuyani. The DTIC funding is a combination of loan and grant funding. For example, the, uh, the auto incentive scheme has a 
grant component in the Black Industrialist Scheme uh, is a grant-driven scheme. On transformation, we've put into the presentation, there wasn't time to deal with it, a few black uh, South African firms as an illustration, but everybody in the industry agree that uh, there needs to be deeper transformation, not only for, for purposes of um, uh, an equitable distribution of ownership arrangements, but also because we want the steel industry to be one that can draw on the talent base of all South Africans. Uh, I visited um, uh, the uh, uh, different uh, firms uh, over the last number of years. I recently visited um, one steel uh, mall and I saw a, a growing number of senior black managers uh, gaining experience and getting uh, uh, the, the uh, and, and contributing to the competitiveness of those firms. There are also South African-owned, Black-owned firms uh, in the industry. On the question around the scientific evidence that localization reduces competitiveness, uh, Honorable uh, uh, Buyani, you've put your, your finger on it. It's, um, it's an assertion. It is true that a poorly executed program of localization can increase prices. Uh, and reduce competitiveness. That's true. It's also true that a well-executed uh, program of localization can enhance competitiveness, can increase the ability of a local industry uh, to compete because it gives it scale on the domestic market. And everything depends on whether it is purely protectionist, you give industry support without requiring it to compete. And one of the big problems is when you have a upstream industry that is dominated by only one player. And so government policy, and we've been very open about this, has been to encourage um, more players to move into upstream steel making. And uh, I'm, I'm very happy to, to say that uh, there's quite a lot of uh, work being done in this area. And in due course, uh, announcements can be made that will show, I hope, that there will be a bit more competition in the upstream market. Uh, on the localization, I should um, uh, clarify because it's a misapprehension that is often done. Localization is not about closing our borders. It's about deepening the level of local content in the goods that we procure as the state, which is absolutely allowed under the World Trade Organization rules. And it is about upping the percentage of uh, local uh, uh, products that retailers and others buy, but it's on the basis that those firms, those businesses needs to expand their market by uh, exporting vigorously, competing out there, gaining the experience, uh, being in the cut and thrusts of markets globally, because that then gives the, the opportunity uh, to remain, to, to become competitive. If you're not competitive, you can't uh, being export markets easily if you're not uh, competitive. And competitiveness, by the way, is not only price, it's the range of things, quality. I mean, for example, you have now these um, corrugated uh, roof sheets uh, that are coming into South Africa extremely cheaply. Some of them are so thin and so dangerous that in a heavy wind, uh, they get dislodged from the rooftop and uh, uh, can can cause injury and death to people. Now, um, 
in addition to quality, we also need to have reliability of delivery and the ability to respond quickly to the um, changing needs of the market. So that's what the competitiveness uh, uh, equation is about. Honorable Mbuyani makes a good point on Heifel Steel. I wish there was more time because I would have loved to give Johan Berger the opportunity to elaborate on uh, the steel industry. Uh, I was presented with a um, book recently by <laughs> Solidarity, the trade union, in which uh, they uh, uh, helped to tell the story of the uh, rebirth of Heifeld Steel, uh, where Johan Berger had led uh, a team of proud South Africans, black and white South Africans, who worked through um, uh, the years and uh, day and night. Uh, I think they lost some hair and they got some grey hair in the process, Johan, to get that um, industrial park going again. And, and bit by bit from a completely empty uh, complex, it was ready to be um, scrapped with all the machinery bundled up and sold to China or India. Uh, instead of that, through their hard work, there are 1,500 South Africans who, who earn an income there now, from a range of economic activities and uh, there's a new announcement which we would want to hope will be successful with time that can increase jobs over the 2000 uh, level and that they took hard work and it was uh, you know when when people work so hard uh, it's 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 wonderful to hear the kind of things that honorable Mbuyani has said because members of parliament appreciating the efforts of South African workers, South African managers, and South African entrepreneurs. Um, uh, Honorable Mbuyani asked about the integration of the work moving forward. We're working closely with a number of different government departments and regulatory agencies, and we've set ourselves some goals for the period ahead, which we hope we would have an opportunity uh, from time to time, maybe annually, to report to the Portfolio Committee. Honorable Motaung asks, what are the measures in place to deal with the dumping of cheap Chinese steel? We've put in place uh, a number of measures, Honorable Motaung. Initially, we uh, put in place a tariff structure where tariffs were previously zero. Then there's also been in place safeguard duties, uh, the safeguard duties that Honorable advising. Those have been... Um, uh, in place for a period of time. We will put in place such anti-dumping duties as are warranted when the evidence show us that products are dumped. We do look at the evidence. We don't take a view that is anti-country as a whole. It's not an anti-China or an anti-United States or anti-European Union. We look at the evidence before us and we make a call on a case-by-case basis. On the question Honorable Motaung raises on public-private partnerships to uh, resuscitate the industry, it's a good question because it goes to the heart of what the steel master plan is about. It's really a public-private partnership. But there's also a need to, to use that similar mechanism in infrastructure. Now, of course, infrastructure falls within the domain of a number of other ministers uh, in cabinet. And I know those ministers, those cabinet members are all committed to getting infrastructure spending boosted and getting rollout of infrastructure. And uh, as we uh, successfully implement each of those, we will then be seeing this public-private partnership 
uh, at work. Uh, I know, Chairperson, in the time available, it's not been possible to deal with absolutely every uh, point that's come up. Um, but I hope we've been able to cover enough of the points to show, uh, taken as a whole, that uh, the steel master plan is um, uh, seeking to, to build a new steel industry. Will it be uniformly successful? Will there be no problems? No. We, we're going to face challenges. We're in a major battle across the world where everybody wants to keep their steel industry. Um, and when France wants to keep a steel industry and Germany wants to keep one and Korea wants to keep one and China wants to keep one and India and the United States and everybody wants to keep and Mexico and Brazil, everybody wants to keep an industrial capacity, then South Africa has to lift its game. And it does mean much harder work by all of us, starting from government being a more agile, a more responsive government, uh, industry working hard to, um, to develop the kind of partnerships that's needed. Thank you very much, uh, Chairperson, for this opportunity to, uh, to uh, exchange some uh, information, some views uh, with um, the, uh, 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 the uh, members of parliament on behalf of industry. As I have indicated, and I see there are um, additional hands, I had asked to be excused at 12 o'clock in order to address a, um, a press briefing where I have to, um, to introduce uh, some information to the media. So um, I, uh, I look forward uh, in the future sessions uh, to uh, uh, responding further to some of the issues, uh, but I want to thank the business community for uh, the partnership, the trade union movement for the partnership, uh, the government agencies and others who have worked strongly on the different areas of uh, the master plan. And I look forward to um, uh, successes and where we have failures, we'll be open about it. We'll pick ourselves up and we'll move forward. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Thank you very much, uh, Comrade Minister. Uh, Honourable Minister and your team, uh, I see there's two other there's two hands for follow up questions. But Minister, if you are not able to stay to respond to it, I want to uh, suggest uh, through the committee secretary that we we ask the the Honourable Cuthbert and Honourable McPherson to submit to the follow up uh, comments to the Minister and uh, then. Uh, if possible, then get a reply in writing, because we still have two agenda items to 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 deal with. Um, can I just check with the committee secretary, um, Chairperson? That is possible if Mr. Cuthbert and Mr. McPherson submit the question in writing, and we can submit it to the GTIC and the minister's response in writing. If Ms. Herman, yes, Mr. Mr. Cuthbert. Ms. Ms. Hermans, uh, Matt, Honourable McPherson, go first. I'll follow. So, sorry, Ms. Hermans, Matt. Just, oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. May I just say, Honourable you know, McPherson. Thanks, Ms. Hermans. Uh, Chair, you, you know, let me say we all have important things to do, um, and you, you know, we have such little opportunity to engage with the minister. You know, quite frankly, if I want to put questions in writing, I'll, you know, I will do that through the parliamentary process. But this is supposed to be a, an opportunity for oversight. That is our role. 
Um, and, you know, the minister shouldn't schedule a press conference at 12 o'clock uh, when, when we have to discuss something as important as the steel master plan. You know, we listened for well over two hours to uh, himself and um, uh, those that uh, have attended. And, you know, this is, this is not, quite frankly, good enough. This is not an opportunity for robust engagement. Um, and, you know, I, I really don't accept it. And as I said, you know, if we want to put questions to the minister in writing, we have that opportunity anyway uh, in, in, uh, through, uh, through, through the questions office. This is to be able to engage specifically backwards and forwards on government policy, on radical government policies that are being put before us. Um, and just to have one round of questions, because the minister wants to go and talk to the media, is quite frankly not acceptable. I don't accept it. Um, his priority should be to this committee first. Uh, that's who he's accountable to, not 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 journalists. Um, and, and, and I really think that we should be allowed to proceed uh, with our follow-up questions uh, as we are doing now. Thanks. Thank you, Honourable McPherson. Uh, before Honourable uh, Cuthbert, can I just uh, listen to the Minister? I see you have your hand up. My hand was up Honourable first, Minister. to be fair with you, uh, Chairperson. No, uh, I'm just allowing the Minister can respond, respond to the comments that the committee members make because he's here on the invitation of the committee. So surely we by virtue of putting our hands up first, get to make our input and we respond accordingly. Now, is your Honourable Cuthbert I recognize you. I just want to give the minister an opportunity to respond to um, Honorable McPherson. That's irregular. Thank you very much, much Chairperson. Chairperson, I, I think, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's really important uh, to respond to this uh, issue raised by Honorable McPherson. Uh, first of all, I was advised that the committee intends to have the discussion on the steel industry until 12 o'clock. I then uh, asked that we be excused, or that I be excused at 12 o'clock. That means there were three hours here. Honorable McPherson and Honorable Cuthbert had an opportunity to ask numerous questions. They didn't do so. They uh, really responded with an ideological diatribe. It's not true that I'm uh, seeking to be accountable to the journalists, but I am accountable to the South African people. And through the media conference, we do communicate important uh, business of government to the South African people. And Honorable McPherson really should uh, be respectful of the need for the executive, not only to talk to him, but also to talk uh, to the South African public as we do. We've set aside the time, we were advised what time the committee is allocating, uh, and, and frankly, uh, you know, if Honorable McPherson and Honorable um, uh, Cuthbert did not use their time well, that's tough. Uh, I have been available and to cast a slur that I'm not available and that everything should be held here for the convenience of Honorable McPherson is really not fair. I mean, we've seen the tone of the comments just descending. And uh, if that's the style that the Honorable members uh, prefer, it's not edifying. Um, now, right when they know that uh, the schedule of the committee was that this item would be completed by 12 o'clock, they want to spring some additional questions, knowing I have another commitment. It's really not a fair way to deal with each other. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Minister. Uh, I see Honourable Cuthbert and Honourable Burns Ngamashe. 
Thanks very um, much, Chairperson. May I continue? Yes, but now we are asking you raise 14 points in your Chair, may I please talk earlier. about you having to interpret on my behalf and assuming what I'm about no, to say? No, no, no. you I'm allow me to continue? You had, you had an opportunity. So we, have, we are asking that given the time constraints and that we have to be in Parliament by two and the time constraints of this committee, that we, we ask you to submit your questions, your further questions. Okay, that's fine, but mine is a process question, so I would like to just put that forward, if you don't mind, unless you'd like to interpret for me further. You may go ahead without sarcasm. Thank you. Okay, I'm just taking the Minister's cue from the posturing and sarcasm that we were subjected to now. Um, What I said in uh, my questions and comments were, you know, what I believe were statements of fact rather than sarcasm. But nonetheless... Maybe just to build on Honourable McPherson's point, is it's not the first time that the Minister has left early necessarily, and granted committee meetings run over and there are pre-scheduled things. However, the sheer nature and the size of the document before us requires you know, sufficient debate on this particular item. And if the Minister wants to duck and dive our questions, that's fine and well, but then you should make that admission rather than trying to posture here because I don't find it to be very genuine. And I think that in future, when we set aside time to discuss issues with the minister, if it's not going to fit into one committee session, then we should break it over into two days so that we've got substantial time to be able to engage on this. It also just speaks to the whole way in which this was handled. Considering the fact that this was made public in June, it is now six months later and we've now received our first opportunity to discuss this particular matter, which means that the committee has sat in the dark unless they've read in the press or statements that come out of the DTRC. So, I mean, that shows in the first place that the minister is not necessarily acting in good faith. And whatever his protestations may be, that is the fact of the matter. Surely once it was signed, there would have been an urgent meeting called to brief the committee if he really took us seriously. But he chose not to do that. Nonetheless, I am not interested in writing uh, written questions. I wanted a verbal opportunity to engage with the minister. If he wants to back out and do whatever it is that he think is, thinks is far more important than engaging with members of the portfolio committee, then that is on him, not on me. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Cuthbert. I think um, we can refer to, man, to PC Mancom, the suggestion made by Honourable Cuthbert that uh, with um, presentations of this nature, we can convene over more than one day. And I think we can look at a further engagement uh, if necessary in the next uh, quarter. Honorable Burns, Mamashi. No, thank you very much, Chair. Uh, my sense, Chair, is that um, um, the direction that was given uh, was a correct approach because chair it must be very clear that uh, <clears throat> no amount of uh, gaslighting or narcissist posturing uh, will uh, take us forward especially if we want to talk to the gallery the minister here was scheduled to be addressing this committee up until 12. We still have 
a program to attend to the house at two. And indeed, the minister, more than being accountable to the committee, is accountable to the people of South Africa. And if he has to address them through the media, that's a very important priority. We can't undermine the people of South Africa who have elected us to occupy the positions that we, that, that we occupy. We are equally accountable to the people of South Africa. We must not undermine them. So that's the point I wanted to make. And it must be very clear, Chair. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Honorable Burns. Thank you, Minister and your team. Uh, can we see the agenda for the next agenda item? Uh, Committee Secretary. Um, Chair, Sorry, Minister, did you have a, a parting uh, remark? Uh, no, Chairperson, uh, I really just wanted to ask if I may be excused. Okay, no, that's fine, Minister. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for staying over the allotted time. Thank you. Um, Chairperson, the next item on the draft agenda is the consideration of the draft program for the first quarter for 2020. If I may ask Ms. Sheldon to, 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 to flight it, Chair Mr. Cuthbert, raise his hand, Chair. Honorable Cuthbert. Thanks very much, Chairperson. I went over this document, and because, as everyone else, we've got to get to Parliament. Um, by virtue of having gone over the documents, I'd like to put forward a proposal to the committee, if I may. Um, and the proposal is as follows, is I would like to put a request to the Special Investigating Unit to come and provide us with their report on their findings into the investigation of malfeasance and corruption at the National Lotteries Commission. As per a parliamentary question, the first part of the report was supposed to be completed by June. We've not seen anything. And the second part of the report is supposed to be completed by the 31st of December. So I believe they'll have ample time to be able to come and present this to us so that we can get a better understanding of what stage they are in terms of prosecutions, asset forfeiture, and the like. And I think it's an important item considering the fact that we have been you know, consumed by the Copyright Amendment Bill um, over the past while, and I understand why. However, I do think it's important that we get the SIU to come and account and give us more information as members of parliament. I think it's been far too quiet on that front. Thank you very much. Are you supporting the program that's, uh, that's been tabled? Yes, Honourable with that amendment, please, if possible. Okay. Okay, I note uh, Honourable McPherson's hand and then first uh, Honourable Mbuyani and then Honourable McPherson. Chairperson, thanks for the question. I just wanted to check in terms of our agenda because we're about to give you an analysis in terms of the program. Now, I'm ready. I don't know how we are agreeing that go with the program. We need to first agree, then we can other proposal. my Thank you. Your, li your line was very bad, but I think if I heard you correctly, you're saying 
we must first agree on the um, addition of that agenda item. Can I just uh, seek for direction from the committee secretary? Chairperson, there was a proposal um, that um, the committee must consider uh, um, I'm calling for that unit to come and present its findings to the committee. Um, there was, a, I, we, we don't have, we need a seconder for that, for it the matter to be considered by the committee and the committee can decide if they wish to add that matter to the program chair. So we do not have a seconder as yet on the matter. It was just moved by Mr. Cuthbert. So we require a seconder and then the committee must, must take a decision on that chair. Okay, thank you. Uh, Honorable McPherson. Yes, thanks, Ms. Hermans. I'm, I'm absolutely comfortable with the proposal made by the Honourable Cuthbert, but I, I just want to caution um, about how we approach these things. Um, any member of parliament can call um, an organ of the state to come to account before a committee, and that is what we have done previously. Um, so if any member of the committee, whether it be an ANC member, DA, EFF, whoever, uh, want a, uh, an, an organ of the state or an entity of the state to come and account, they may do so. And then it's up to the committee or the committee secretariat uh, to make that happen. But it's, it's not something that we can either be, you know, supporting or voting against, uh, because that would be a fundamental violation of a member of parliament's rights and duties. Um, and, and so I just want to just put that caution that, you know, it's, it's something that we should, uh, uh, we should be comfortable with. Any member of parliament may do so. Um, and just the secretariat needs to look at how that is accommodated to. So we don't necessarily need to say it must be on the 25th of January. Um, we just need to leave it up to the secretariat to schedule that uh, within uh, within the program. Thanks. Thank you very much for that clarity, uh, Honourable McPherson. And I think there is no member of the committee who wouldn't want to know what is happening in the entities that falls under this department. So um, can I just check if there are any counter proposals, but otherwise we can leave it up to the secretariat to see how it can be accommodated in the program. Honourable members. Right, I think uh, I don't see any hands. So I think we will see uh, Secretariat how we can uh, accommodate the proposed agenda item, which is the NLC SIU investigations asking for them to come and report to the committee. Thank you very much. Um, so we have um, Honorable um, McPherson, was that a second to the uh, tabling of the program? Yes, ma'am. Okay, thank you very much. So our program is adopted with the uh, additional item that we will see how we will accommodate in the in the agenda uh, in the program of the of the PC. Um, the next item is an item that was sponsored by Honourable Muda regarding the advert for public participation or for public inputs on the um, remitted bills. 
Um, if I may just ask Honorable Mulder, just to, by way of information to the committee, just to take us brief, very briefly, we are a minute before one, through the um, the what it is, the substance, the substantive issue that you want to raise around the advertisement. I have seen a copy of it, but, you know, in chairing the meeting, I haven't had a chance to look at it in detail. Uh, Advocate van der Merwe is on the platform to respond. Advocate van der Merwe? Uh, Sorry, no, first, uh, Honorable Mulder. Thank you, Honorable Chair. I'll be short. I've also started driving towards Parliament, so I'll be short. Um, I just have to put this to the committee. Um, the invitation to, it's all about the invitation to stakeholders and interested parties to submit written submissions on additional definitions and clauses that was issued on Friday. Uh, this, to my view, is incomplete, so much so that it will be incomprehensible to the public. The new text in respect of which comment is sought comes on the back of numerous changes that, uh, to the Copyright Amendment Bill, and of course, many of which we have not, have not been advertised, and many of which are directly relevant to this text. The public that relies only on this invitation to submit comments has no knowledge of these changes at all, Madam Chair. For example, someone who wants to comment on the technical protection measurements will only see the new definitions. Uh, and not the changes to the sections, and specific, for instance, to ADP and S. Someone who wants to comment on the exception of the disabled, for instance, section 19D, will not see that the definition of accessible format copy has been changed. So it goes on, the notice should have presented the entire bill as revised to enable the public to see the context in which these changes are being proposed. Instead, Members of the public who respond to this invitation will undoubtedly make mistakes, and those mistakes will be caused solely by the inadequacy of the consultation document. So, Madam Chair, therefore, I move that the invitation be withdrawn until we can present the public with a document that the entire bill showing all the changes that have been made in this committee. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Advocate van der Merwe, in response... Thank you, Chairperson, and good uh, afternoon to the members and good afternoon to you. Chairperson, I have had a look at the at the um, the concern that Honourable Mulder has just raised, and I've also worked through all the amendments that um, that has been proposed and that have been presented to to the committee. Um, Chair, first off, we we need to keep in mind that. Um, the, the amendments proposed to the committee is now in the public domain. It's not that the members of the public have not seen it and, and, and are not aware of it. The advert also provides for access to the bill as it is, um, uh, as it was passed uh, rather by both houses. And it also provides for access uh, to committee support if there are any queries. Um, so that's, that is the first thing to, thing to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is that this is a very focused consultation with the public. The whole bill is not open for consultation. Um, first off, this is a Section 79.1 process, um, and, it, and that in itself limits the committee significantly. Secondly, this is a second advertisement. 
uh, on very specific issues. In fact, the advert explains what each amendment is about. And that is what the public is being consulted on. They're not being consulted generally. However, um, with the the proposal in respect of uh, putting the whole bill to, to the public, of course, if that is the decision of the committee, we can do that. Um, however, that is normally something that happens at the time when the committee has considered and voted on all the amendments. So if we have a C list and then it uh, results in a, in a D bill. Um, so we can do it, but it is, it is a, a separate exercise. What I perhaps would propose, because I also understand um, what the, the the member's concern is, and in the end, it is about um, allowing and enabling the public to to provide as good an input as they can in order to guide this committee, in order to for this committee to be able to understand how, what the public's views are on these amendments. And what we can perhaps propose, Chair, is that the document that was in fact presented to the members in the committee, in other words, the document that contained all the amendments proposed, um, and um, um, sorry, in other words, the, the ones that, that are advertised, but also the ones that are not advertised, that are resulting from the public comments, is not material amendments, or technical amendments to remove duplications, um, to correct cross-referencing and so on. What we can propose, Chair, is that that document um, can be added to the advert as a supporting document, but that it is, is made very clear um, in the link perhaps to that document that this is not the document that is open for comment. It is simply supporting the, the document that is open for comment. And it is also um, just, it, it is a normal practice where a committee does such a focused uh, consultation that only the specific wording that is being um, given to the public for comment is advertised. But like I say, um, in order to allow the public to um, to perhaps make, make more informed uh, comments, uh, the document is already in the public domain. It is not that it is confidential. It is something that we can upload um, to the website. But we are in the hands of the committee. Um, whether to do upload that document, whether the committee is of the view that there is um, sufficient information out there uh, for, for the public, or if we need to do the, the whole bill, uh, that we're in, in the hands of the committee. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you very much. Uh, can I hear from Honorable Mulder whether the advocate's recommendation of uh, putting a link or uploading the original document that shows all amendments, those that into Parliament, those that are were that are being advertised, and those that were not advertised, and those that were just technical amendments. Thank Honourable you, Honourable Chair. Um, yes, I would appreciate it, and I'm sure that the public would appreciate it as well. We should not um, come to think that the public is also that well informed as as we are, and we don't want anything to stand in the way of. Um, getting to a point where we could uh, clear up this whole issue on, on the Act. So I would support that. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Honorable Mulder. Um, so that deals with that, um, that uh, uh, agenda item that was added by Honorable Mulder. I just want to check with the subcommittee secretariat. That leaves us with the minutes. Am I right? 
Um, that's correct, Chair. That leaves us with minutes. We can oh. it's one set of minutes, or we can hold over to next year's up to the committee to decide okay. given the time. I want to propose, given the time, I'm a duty whip today, and I'm still sitting in my house in this meeting. That uh, that we I beg the indulgence of the committee that we let the set that one set of minutes stand over until next year. Is there any opposition to that? I don't see any. So um, that means we've dealt with the business of the day. I thank you very much for attending and I declare this meeting closed. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Chairperson. Recording stopped.